Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always, my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, Darren. How are you this morning? I am very enthusiastic, as you can hear from the sound of my You ready for some podcasting? I am indeed. I am indeed. Um, but yes, so this is a special crossover episode. We've got a fantastic guest joining us, the wonderful Carl Sweeney from the Movie Palace podcast. How are you, Carl? Not bad, thanks, Darren. Hi, Carl. Yeah, hi, Andrew. Um, glad to be with you. It's been a little while, hasn't it? So very much pleased to be back with you. It has yeah. since Hugo, I think, actually. I think Hugo was oh, yeah. the last one we did together. Very much not in the Movie Palace's wheelhouse from a, like, a technical, historical standpoint, but really glad that we covered it. This, I think, is perhaps a bit more kind of in the wheelhouse of what the Movie Palace normally does. Ernest Lubitz, uh, 1942, To Be or Not To Be. Uh, which is a surprise re-entry uh, on the list. It entered, I think, mid-last year, having finally hit that kind of threshold of 25,000 votes, uh, which is interesting. So a hot new entry this week. It's the only earnest movie on the 250. <laughs> <laughs> it is, unfortunately. Ernest goes to Poland, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm sure there's a... There, no, wait. There there are some Ernest Borgenine movies, aren't there? Um, do do they count? The Wild Bunch has got to be on there, yeah. is it? No, I mean, I mean no. haven't we seen some? Es- wasn't he... Escape from New York isn't on there. Um, no, was it? Was it... Oh, he was in something. Yeah. He was in something, I think. And we remarked how small his part was, I think. Yeah, he he was, so he was in the insurance movie. Double Indemnity, right? No. A- am I wrong? N- You're wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have Carl on the podcast. Um, <laughs> um, but yes, actually, Double Indemnity was one of the, the first movies that we covered as a crossover, which is great. Um, it was, I think, yeah. So I had kind of reached out and I'd said, would you like to talk about or come on and talk with us about To Be or Not To Be? Because the movie I've kind of been watching on the list, I've been very fascinated by. Because again... It's very odd that a movie from the 1940s suddenly arrives on a list of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. And I think you said that you had never seen it before, but were very interested in it. Mm -hmm. Yes, hadn't seen it. Um, So I just thought it was a nice opportunity, really, because to be honest, I'm not as knowledgeable about Ernst Lubitsch as I would like to be. I have seen a few of his films, but that feels like a real oversight on my part. So I just thought this was a good one to kind of tick off, really, and a big one to tick off in terms of Lubitsch. so yeah, no, it's unusual because normally the things I like to podcast about are things I've seen several times and going back several years. So this was a bit of a departure. Um, I couldn't have told you what this film was about before you reached out to me. I was aware of the film. I knew that Ernst Lubitsch made it. I didn't know what the story was, who was in it. Um, and I think that was part of it too. I looked and I thought, well, I've never seen Jack Benny in anything. I'm aware of Jack Benny. Mm. You know, if you'd have asked me who he was, I could have said big radio star, big early television performer. Not sure I could have picked a picture of him out of a lineup, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I thought, yeah, nice chance to tick this film off, see something with him in. Um, Carol Lombard's last film as well. Uh, so, yeah. Um, were you aware of it? Or to what extent were you aware of it? Not really. Like, the only way that I was really aware of it was I knew, I thought it was the Mel Brooks film, first of all. The 19, I think, 82 remake was the first assumption that I made. Um, and I also, then when I dug into it, I knew that it was... I'm glad I did not watch that one. <laughs> this time we yeah. have some recent well, yeah. experience <laughs> yeah a couple of weeks ago we we watched harakiri and i just texted andrew and said we're doing harakiri <laughs> and he's like why why is takeshi mike's movie on the list yeah. um, and i was like well andrew i have good news and bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. but i was so bummed 
watching that movie. You really were. You text me angrily. You te- <laughs> like, why are we covering this? I think you text me. Um, it's not that it was a bad I, movie. I, it was just that, like, I, I, it put me in a, a really very angry, bad nihilistic. Mood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, no, I, I didn't make that mistake that time. I, I was kind of hovering over <laughs> the Mel Brooks one. <laughs> the, the two options. Could you find the Mel Brooks one? I couldn't find the Mel Brooks one to watch anywhere. It can't, the, yeah, it was this, It was the second um, result, I think. Um, Ooh. Uh, so, they, they, you, you know, like images come up. We we won't say what search engine we use. <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it supposed to be good? Is it meant to be good Mel Brooks or bad Mel Brooks, that film? Do we know? It, it, critics' opinion are divided. It was warmly received at the time. Ironically, probably more warmly received than this movie was. Yeah. And we'll get on to talking about that in a second. Uh, but the general perception is that Brooks... Um, veered too hard into comedy because again and we'll talk about this when we talk about this movie the thing that one of the things that this movie does and arguably one of the reasons why the movie generated some of the response that it did at the time is that it balances genre it's it's of comedy it's a broad comedy it stars uh jack benny as we mentioned but it is yeah but it is also at times very tense there are stakes there is tension and apparently brooks you know did not necessarily manage to balance that particularly well he veered very much into the farce dimension of it um as you might expect from the director of the producers and the producers was also kind of like influenced by this yeah. as well was this before or after producers that he that he that he did this because i'm kind of wondering like what would the point be? You know, if, if he had already done the producers, yeah, what, why, why, why? And I'm not going to say whether I, yeah. I think the producers must have been earlier, mustn't it? Yeah, yeah, it would have been. I think this was just like a victory lap for him. This It was just like a, what would you like to do, Mr. Brooks? Because he didn't actually direct it. Um, it. He just starred in it and produced it. Oh, I see. Was there a writer's strike or something? <laughs> <laughs> and he was just like, we already have the script. Yeah, we'll <laughs> just do this one. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did also, I was slightly aware of it as Carol Lombard's last film, um, because again, I've been listening to, uh, you must remember this, the, the kind of podcast that looks at Hollywood history, and they did a whole season on World War II and movie stars, and it kind of came up in the context of Carol Lombard's um, very tragic, uh, very tragic passing as well. Um, but I, I had never watched it before, and I kind of thought it would be interesting, and as I kind of dug into it, it became even more interesting because there's a lot of stuff here and I thought it would be fun to talk about. A couple of things Carl's already mentioned that are worth unpacking. Uh, Lubitz. Um, Lubitz is a director who was huge at the time. Um, he is generally regarded as one of the fathers of the modern romantic comedy. In fact, I think the movie that he made directly before To Be or Not To Be uh, was The um, the Shop Around the Corner, which like basically codified a lot of what we expect from the modern romantic comedy. It was remade as You've Got Mail. Um, starring, obviously, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, the original starring Jimmy Stewart, in case you needed more proof that, like, Tom Hanks was Jimmy Stewart <laughs> yeah. 2.0 or whatever. Um, but he, you know, he was a German director. How many other movies have been... How, how, how many other Stewart movies have been remade with Tom Hanks? Like, spiritual or actual sequels, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it's another I, I podcast. Kind of like, <laughs> that is a separate podcast. That's the Hanks cast. We're hankering for some Hanks. Um <laughs> But I, I do think that, like, again, Newbitz, uh, director, um, he was, you know, exiled. He moved from uh, Europe to the U.S. He was brought over, I think, by Mary Pickford. He'd made films in Weimar, Germany. He'd done a lot of work there with the censor, um, working around the censor uh, in Germany at the time. And it's been suggested that that work in Germany under the censor arguably contributed to why he was so good at the production code, at managing the production code and getting stuff through and under the radar. 
Um, because like even in this movie, this movie was usually controversial, but he managed to get a lot of it, a lot of surprisingly pointed, barbed, sharp content past the censor at a time when you would imagine that, you know, the movies studios would be very, very sensitive about like World War Two, given that it was literally happening as this movie was released. Well, it, I, I wonder how much they take into account who it's coming from. And I also think it's hilarious, like the that he can have that perspective. Like obviously it's tragic as well, but 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 to have that perspective, well I deal with the Nazis, I can deal with you, you know? Yeah. Um And well also also the fact that I think when the film goes into production, I think it's a few weeks before Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And then by the time it's released it's quite a different context, I think. Um but yeah, his background's quite interesting because I think his father, who was a tailor, apparently quite a prosperous tailor. So he'd migrated to Germany from Russia uh, in the late 19th century. Um, so his, his background's very transnational, I think. So born to a Jewish family and obviously a, a society with a society with a lot of anti-Semitic restrictions. So he had this kind of outsider status, both in Germany and then in America. And I think people have said he was pretty attuned to how certain social groups could be excluded. I mean, I think he was a man of his times as well, and there were limitations to that and so on and so forth. But um, part of that also was that he felt that his appearance and his shortness meant that he was kind of excluded from some norms because he had, he had been an actor. Um, uh, he played a comical Jewish character in these short farces, apparently. But he felt that because of the way he looked, people, audiences wouldn't accept him as a straight leading man. You know, it's interesting how his influence seems to be on comedy, but those weren't the films that were the reason he was brought to Hollywood. Apparently, he'd made these epic costume dramas in Germany. Um, and I think it was a time, wasn't it, where the German film industry was known to be very artistically advanced and a lot of technical expertise was in Germany. And I think the American industry wanted that kind of prestige to kind of rub off on it. So that's part of the reason he was brought over. And then he sort of returns to his roots in the US by making comedies, but of a different kind. They were sort of more sophisticated, whereas before his work had been quite broad and anarchic is what I've heard. But by, by the time of this, I think his career had gone through another phase of adjustment because his style of comedy the sort of sophisticated pre-code comedies had fallen out of favor, you know? Um, so I've, I've read that this film is more political and more personal than his other work really, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, it's worth singling out as well. You mentioned like the, the idea of him as an actor. Um, I think that like Hitler apparently very famously had like an ax to grind with Lubitz. In fact, <laughs> yeah. like Lubitz actually appears in the Nazi propaganda film, The Eternal Jew, um, you know, as an archetype of corruption, depravity, which is apparently footage taken from the director on Berlin on his last visit six weeks before Hitler was sworn in as chancellor. Um, so it, like, again, it, it's kind of interesting that, that that tension exists there as well. And I think like Lubitz at the time was probably best known for the Lubitz touch, which is like to get this gives you a sense of like, and you mentioned like how eager the Hollywood studios were to have him. I think he signed a contract with Fox back in March 1941. Like he signed a free form, no restrictions, final cut, make your own project deal with Fox, I think in March 1941, which was relatively unheard of, particularly for a director like this. But he was known for the Lubitz touch and the Lubitz touch was, was pretty much exactly what we talked about there. It was 
his ability to sneak stuff past the sensor across the radar. And in, in the context of romantic comedies, um, it was things like lots of references to sex and sexuality and like body references and allusions to the act of sex, uh, which were things that obviously with the production code coming in in, in 1934, I think, were basically, no, you, you can't have those in movies anymore. The, the thing I like about the code as well and about getting things um, past the code is instead of somebody says that's a sex reference, they're the perverts, you know? <laughs> and so I'm like, what do you mean? You you, you, yeah. you look at this line where they're describing a Y, like the letter Y, and you, and you think what? What is it you think? <laughs> you dirty yeah, man. Uh, apparently an American film censor once complained that uh, with Lubitsch, you know what he's saying, but you just can't prove he's saying it, right. <laughs> which is interesting. <laughs> um, now he's an interesting figure. The thing you mentioned there, Darren, about his autonomy you know, because he's somebody who actually moved between studios quite a bit. I think he worked at Paramount for the longest period. In fact, what's interesting is for a brief period, he was made the head of production at Paramount, but apparently didn't work out. But also he'd worked at United Artists, Warner Brothers, MGM, 20th Century Fox, and his style changed a bit as he moved between studios. But arguably then he fits the idea of an auteur better than many other figures from old Hollywood because he had that autonomy, which was quite rare at the time, almost always had the right to final cut. I think on To Be or Not To Be, he had writer approval, cast approval, and final cut. I mean, there's probably a broader discussion there. You may have had it before. I'm not sure we've ever discussed it, but the idea about whether it's appropriate even to think about the idea of an auteur in such a restrictive system as old Hollywood or at all in in terms of filmmaking because it's so collaborative, you know. But Lubitsch, of those old sort of, older sort of figures, like I say, he had a lot of uh, pull, which is interesting. Well, I, I imagine part of it is the ego of the director and, and, and to what extent that's kind of, you know, trampled down by the studio. And, uh, and, and, and the second thing, like, these days, and, and perhaps back then, is marketing. Is it, You know, if... if, if if the um, if it's going to make the studio money to kind of put his name out there and make 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 yeah. make him a star, but then then it becomes more difficult to manage him. From the visionary director Ernest Lubitz. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I I guess I I, I get the impression like like a, a lot of these older films, I mean films these days, but a, a lot of these older films I find myself noticing how um, much importance is given to the kind of uh, production of it, like where where they, they, you um like I I I I think we've seen a few films so far where it's uh, where it's Selznick, um yeah and and where where it feels like the title cards are kind of telling you more about Selznick than than about anything else, which would be I I I guess unusual in the in in these days. It's kind of like I make movies. I don't direct them. <laughs> um, yeah. Just somehow movies happen. I just, yeah. yeah, and it's all for me. Yeah. I think we, we 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 talked about this when we talked about I think The Wizard of Oz, which oh, I yeah. think Salman Rushdie yeah. described as the authorless text because it had what four or five, even six directors, depending on how you count them. Um, and like the the closest thing you had to a guiding light was the studio executive at the very top. Um, which is kind of fascinating as well. But yeah, Lubitz is is fascinating figure. And like, even in the context of this, which we kind of alluded to, you mentioned that it began production a couple of weeks before the US entry into the, into the war with Pearl Harbor. Um, and again, I think I've seen conflicting reports whether it began shooting in October or November. Um, but obviously, when it was filmed and when it was about to release, that was a huge fireball. And I kind of love, this is a great Lubitz story where... 
the studio apparently were very touchy about it and they looked at the title to be or not to be and they apparently thought that this wouldn't market well in rural areas they're worried about like <laughs> rural americans seeing a line from shakespeare and thinking that this would be a different kind of film instead of a jack benny film and carol lombard film queen of the screwballs um so they were like okay can we change the name of this movie <laughs> and lubitz and this is a this is a i absolutely love this lubitz responds by writing a letter and CCing his stars and the press on it, announcing that, why, yes, I take on board the studio's United Artists reservations about this. I understand that this movie is too hot to be released in its current form. <laughs> I would happily suggest that we change the title of this movie to The Censor Forbids. Sincerely, Ernest Lubitz. And then <laughs> sat back and watched the fireworks. As like Jack Benny and Carol Lombard were like, what are you trying to do? Censor this movie that we're making. And you had an artist going, whoa, 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 whoa. That wasn't what we were suggesting at all. And eventually kind of relenting and saying, okay, fine. You can call it to be or not to be if you want. No, yeah. Which I kind of no, love. No, no censor could stop them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's funny though, Darren, because I'd also come across another story that I don't think in relation to this film, but just about Lubitsch generally, which was that small town exhibitors often complained that as good as his films were, they didn't appeal to their patrons because they were too sophisticated, you know, which is kind of interesting. Um, cause I think the idea that the, of the Lubitsch touch that you kind of mentioned when it's normally associated with a sophisticated type of comedy, which is often about omission or ellipses. I think Francois Truffaut described Lubitsch's style as Lubitsch Swiss cheese. You know, it's, it has all these holes in that the audience must fill themselves. Um, I suppose one of the things that's interesting about that is first of all, just the very term Lubitsch touch, it suggests that he has this recognizable style, even as he's working in this highly codified system. Um, but also what Peter Bogdanovich said was that the Lubitsch touch was as famous a phrase in its day as calling Hitchcock the master of suspense, you know, and I don't think it feels like that now. It feels to me like Hitchcock is still much more well-known than Lubitsch is. Is that fair? Or is that just me projecting because I haven't seen as many of his films as I would like, you know? No, I'm, Absolutely, I'll I'll speak as the person who 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 knows least about movies. Um, I I hadn't heard of the Lubitsch touch. Um, I hadn't heard of uh, this movie. I needed to I needed to look it up. Um, so no, that I I think that's fair. It, um, that he, he, the 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 idea of there being a a, a Lubitsch touch doesn't doesn't have the same currency. I, I guess what 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 do you reckon Darren? well no like that's that's the thing is that like it's it's been argued that like lubitz was hugely influential at the time and inspired a generation of filmmakers who followed like billy wilder uh very mm. famously had a sign above his door reading how would lubitz do it wow um, like that's how much he was kind of yeah how much he was influenced well i mean like it goes even deeper than that like not this is not a spoiler for the film that we're discussing but like there's a character in this movie called Colonel Earhart who's played by an actor called Sig Ruman. Um, and, you know, he's called Concentration Camp Earhart and has a whipping boy named Schultz. Um, Schultz! 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 Um, however, when Billy Wilder was making Stalig 17, he cast Sig Ruman again as the Nazi sergeant inspecting the POW barracks named Schultz. Um, but like, I'm, you have this entire gen funny... generation of kind of like it's a funny thing, though, because uh, like the, the uh, audiences now are familiar with Billy Wilder. They're also familiar with people like Fritz Lang, who like you know Ger German directors who came over um, to to America, kind of, and 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 who 
who who who are known. Is it is it that we don't value comedy? I I I mean I I know Billy Wilder is uh, obviously kind of an 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 exception to that, but um there 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 there's a real lack of these sorts of movies in the list. And does it does it represent kind of that there's a difference between the movies that people say they like and the movies that they actually like? And all of a sudden, <laughs> maybe because they've because you know the the public kind of um, opinion is is that certain movies are better than others because they're they're more serious or more uh, earnest or more worthy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, I mean that's the thing is that Lubitz is is very much like defined by you know outside of this things like romantic comedies. That's his big influence in Hollywood. Um, things like The Shop Around the Corner. Um, things like you know kind of that that was it the Touch of Paradise sorry uh Trouble in Paradise Trouble in you know, Paradise nineteen thirty two. That sort of stuff is kind of like what defined him and was his kind of bread and butter. And yet there aren't a lot of those movies on the list. And we we historically I think don't think of romantic comedies as a genre as worthy others like when we did our summer of 99 season which you know wrapped up three weeks ago i think roughly um but like when we when we did, when yeah. we did that when we did that season which is still ongoing we Ten talked things about, i had about you kept on coming up coming yeah and and like didn't make the list never made the list we talked about how things like clueless is a touchstone for many people mm. many young people of our generation but never gets talked about in the same breath as fight club or the matrix or those kind yeah, of movies which are more in in terms of like subversive teen movies like they don't talk about election either like that even though that's alexander payne like that's that's a yeah. guy who's now regarded as an auteur but like he didn't become an auteur until he started making movies like the descendants uh, like the descendants or whatever you know yeah well yeah. Is, is this the only lubitsch film in the imdb list then or have I'll others go, been in and out? Or? I'll go you one better. This is the only Lubitz film that has ever been in the list, right, which is right. kind of striking as well, and thought thought it was worth talking about. I do wonder, though, um, if it's also um, down to the fact that whereas, like, Fritz Lang is one of a kind, and I mean, you could you could argue that, like, maybe you can draw a line from him to Tim Burton, but, like, in terms of, like, as directors with distinct stylistic sensibilities, like, Lang is of his own, and in a class of his own, whereas if you were being generous and we were saying maybe it's the romantic comedy stuff and maybe it's something else, is it also that like Lubitz was a clear influence on a generation of directors who maybe supplanted him in the consciousness? Like we mentioned Billy Wilder being a key student. We mentioned the fact that like, you know, Mel Brooks loved this movie so much that he went on and he remade it. And like Brooks doesn't have a movie in the 250 to be clear but he has had three movies in the 250 he's had uh blazing saddles the producers um and what was young the frankenstein young frankenstein yes thank you good good guess andrew and you're right but yeah but like and again those drop out because comedies aren't treated as seriously anyway but i do wonder if yeah. with lubitz it's a case of like he was the original but in public consciousness, when we think about movies that we would imagine as Lubitz movies, we think about things like, say, the producers instead when it comes to Nazi spoofs, or we think about... Yeah, and also maybe the fact that his, his work in Germany is somewhat overlooked. You know, if it may be that they're a substantial part of his body of work, but it's generally the fact that the American films are what are discussed, aren't they? I think there is a, a good box set somewhere of his, some of his earlier films, but I wonder if that's part of it. I do think what you said there rings true. The fact that, I mean, obviously he's one of the most successful European migrants to go to Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century. And we've talked before, I think on Double Indemnity, we were talking about how figures like Wilder uh, kind of enriched American cinema. But I think what you're saying sounds about right, that some of those figures like Wilder kind of supplanted him in the popular consciousness, which is a shame. 
Um, at least this one's in there. That's good. Um, all right, then. So before we jump into the spoilers on three questions to get us started. So, Carl, do you think To Be or Not To Be belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? I think that you could probably make a good claim for its greatness. I think it does feel to me like someone like Lubitsch should be on the list. So I think that would be a, a big part of the argument. I think it's a triumph for, like I said, Lombard and, and Jack Benny. I don't think is ever going to get near the list otherwise, <laughs> you know. Um, as a different kind of World War II film, I think it has an awful lot of merit. So I think there's a case for it. I'm not sure I can... It's hard for me because I've only seen it like four days ago. <laughs> it takes me a while to sort of make my mind up on this kind of thing. Um I think there's a strong case for it, yeah. And Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, I I, I do. So I, I think it has a lot to recommend itself. It's hilarious. Like, I was uh, kind of laughing out loud, like, probably, yeah, I'd say at least 10 times, maybe. I'm not, I didn't, I didn't clock it. That six laugh test. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, the, the um, it is, is it, it isn't just that either. I mean, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous movie. It's very well p- paced. It just zips, and um, I like 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 I was amazed watching it, be- because, <laughs> not because I wasn't enjoying it, but because I was under pressure this morning. I was looking at the time, and I was like, <laughs> "How are they going to yeah. get through all this stuff like in in the next ten <laughs> minutes?" Because like, they, they, this is not wrapped up. Like they're not saying, "All right, bye, everyone." <laughs> You know, this isn't the, the we haven't yet reached the the, the kind of conclusion. But the, it 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 it's um it's really very propulsive. I think the the message of it is is profound yet yet kind of straightforward. Um, I th- I think you can enjoy it on 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 a few different levels. It has that nice kind of quality that farces have, where it's um it can be a little um. Uh, serpentine or it can be fun to kind of figure out what's happening um but not too much you know um so yeah yeah i i i i do i do think this is this this is a great example of a film you know if if the idea was to take um these 250 films and put them in a ship and send them into the <laughs> furthest reaches of our galaxy. <laughs> As a representative of is what film is. Is that what the is. first question means? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, the second question is Movie Island. The first question is Movie <laughs> movie Pod. Um, movie Voyager. Movie Voyager, um, yeah. <laughs> movie Voyager 5. But yes, um, I would, yeah, I, for myself, I would agree with that. Voyager. I, I, I that's it. What would happen if, yeah, if Voyager got like to be or not to be instead and kind of moved its way back? <laughs> Star Trek did have a couple of Nazi episodes. Episodes, to be fair um so there probably was a planet that received a copy of to be or not to be and kind of interpreted the uh, in the wrong way but no yeah, um, i would if, if like in star trek when they're like what are we gonna do and in the writer's room it's like do you want to do another nazi thing <laughs> it's like yes <laughs> it's, been, we did, it's been ages we did a gangster <laughs> planet we did a roman planet do you think we can do i think we can fit in a nazi planet and it's great because all those things happen in like a compressed period of time at the end of the second season so there's a real sense of what the what the hell are we doing this week uh planet of the gangsters there we go that's it um and the thing is i would argue all three of those are great 
but this is not yeah. a Star Trek podcast. Um, <laughs> that is a separate <laughs> podcast. Sorry, I shouldn't get you started. I, I know. Sorry, I, feel, I, I felt like I just wound you up yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. And let me waddle across the table like a like a wind up penguin. Uh, but that's a different movie. That's the movie we covered last week. Um, but what I will say is, yeah, I would agree with actually. I think both of you said it very well, very well. Which is, I think there is an argument to be made for it being there in terms of cultural importance. I think we mentioned the producers. I don't imagine you get the producers without this, to be frank. I also, and I think Tarantino's been frank about this, you don't get Inglorious Bastards mm. without this. Yeah. Um, and I think Verhoeven right. has also, like, I don't know if he's admitted it, but I think it's very obvious you don't get Black Book if you don't without this as well. Do I you think-, think we'd get Jojo Rabbit without this? I mean, I'd be happy with not having Jojo Rabbit personally, but what do you, what do you think? Because that mix of kind of, you know. The, the, the Heil Hitler kind of joke... And the skewering. It. By the way, Verhoeven is he? He, he directed RoboCop, didn't he? Sorry. Yeah, um, I set you up there, Andrew. <laughs> obligatory RoboCop reference. I beg your pardon. I, I I didn't get in quite at it, but uh, I was thinking I'm going to have to do that later on. I've derailed the podcast enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, yeah. It, again, you you mean the only Best Picture nominee from last year, Carl? That didn't make it didn't this make list. the two fifty. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So justice yeah. has been done in some way. <laughs> Uh, they, they do borrow the, the hail myself that joke, isn't that? They use that in. They just use that on Jojo yeah. Rabbit. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, like, I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit, but I've seen kind of uh, little um, clips, I guess, where yeah. I think maybe Steve Martin did something where he talked about his performance or, or where Taika Waititi talked about a scene or something. Um, and yeah, it features like a lot of the kind of same jokes. But um, and I haven't seen jo- Jojo Rabbit, and I don't want to give away too. Much. Well, I've already said it's one of the top two hundred fifty <laughs> movies ever made, and Jojo Rabbit uh, uh, clearly isn't. isn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, this is better, and it 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 tells the joke better too. It it had plenty of time to to go back and like recut the joke, and it's like this is going to be just like to be or not to be, but even better. But instead, it was like, what are we doing? 70 years to work on the joke and that's what you had I do like by the way that Andrew says it's like Jojo Rabbit isn't one of the 250 greatest movies ever like it's some sort of damning insult <laughs> I like Taika Matiti, by the way I, I love Taika Matiti. I know he's a fan so yeah he um, does listen he's very enthusiastic yeah. he's going to be in our yeah. mentions after this um, imagine right, if he did listen <laughs> like <laughs> he definitely doesn't he's too many things to be doing yeah um, alright and, and Carl would it be on your own personal 250, having only seen it four days ago? Well, I, I did think it was genuinely laugh out loud funny. I thought it blended in the more serious elements effectively. I think the ideas it's playing with are quite weighty. And I felt they were treated in, a, in an appropriate way. Although, as you've alluded to already, Darren, that wasn't how a lot of critics felt at the time. I do think it's a very interesting approach. Take some of the heaviest subject matter you can think of and treat it comically. I can see why people would be uneasy about that in principle. But I think it gets across the seriousness of the situation whilst also making you laugh, and that's no mean feat. Would it be one of my favourites? I'm going to say no at this stage, just purely because it takes me a while. I only saw it this week. Um, I could see it becoming a favourite, having watched it a couple of times. I can see it being a film I watch again, and it may be that it does take its place in my list of favourites eventually. So I think there's potential there. And Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, I, I, I think it's got quite a good shot. I think I think it does a better job than Brooks, um, in 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 the producers. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to do because like if 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 you're doing a funny movie about uh, Nazis, 
then do you put in a scene which um, um, shifts the tone? Makes them threatening? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, or do, 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 do you just kind of um, make a satire and say it is, it, it's, it's not only uh, tragic that this happened, it's stupid, you know? Um, and 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 I I think I think that's kind of the way the the way the movie goes. And there is pathos in it, but it's not um it, it, like it it's not trying to kind of um ram it down your throat or like at the expense of it doesn't feel tokenistic or kind of like that that like oh now we have to kind of you know um um uh, change change tone. It, it 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 all feels fairly kind of authentic and. I, I I like the approach. Now, it's not for me to say. Other people might find it offensive. And that's fine, too. We should mention that, like, we'll probably talk about this more on the other side, but, like, in terms of the genre shift, that was a usually controversial thing for critics at the time. And it was something that I think that, that kind of Lubitsch himself kind of talked about and had to defend in articles that he wrote. Very jarring. Yeah, it is. It, it's striking. Um, I did not know what this movie was. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it with another person, and they were like, is this a comedy? <laughs> sorry. And sorry, you're like, I guess, you. I guess. Uh, maybe. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I, I, I don't know. I didn't want to say straight away. <laughs> yeah. um, but like, it, it is like the cinematography was done by Rudolf Maté, um, who apparently shot it in the same way that he shot like Alfred Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent from 1940. So it, like, there are times where it is, it is shot. The visual language of it is, this is an espionage thriller. And then there's other parts of it where it's like, no, this is very similar to the producers. I think that makes it better, though. Mm. I feel like, 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 like a, a, a lot of there, there are different kind of theories of humor, and it's like, why is there a theory of humor? It's either funny or it's not. But, <laughs> but, 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 but one kind of theory is that it's kind of incongruity. So it's you, 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 you shoot something serious, and you have people playing thing, um, things straight as well. But what they're saying isn't. Yeah. Um, is absurd. Uh, yeah, is absurd. Are you you'd, like? Um, um, yeah, sorry. I, I was going to come up with some examples, but people know what I mean. Yeah, you mean the entire cinematography of Paul Verhoeven, for example, the director of Robocop. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I was going to say the Armstrong and Miller sketch, uh, where there's two World War Two pilots, which we have in this movie. And where they're talking about being World War Two pilots, but they're talking like teenagers. <laughs> they're like, and I just smashed into this tree. Like, it's like, <laughs> shut up! <laughs> no, no, I, I, I did, and it was like all like, like exploded and everything. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> where, where, where that's kind of you know, it's in black and white, and they're wearing the uniforms, and they, they, they look like um, <laughs> British air pilots in a World War Two movie. Yeah. And they're talking about that stuff, but it, but it, but it, and and the the hilarity is is that like you you kind of get used to people talking um, like teenagers, but you yeah. you put it in in another context, and you're like, yeah yeah sorry. In, in, t- in terms of why that, that's the kind of thing I mean. In terms of why things are funny, I think there's the idea that Lubitsch's films, which are predominantly comedies, they have this sort of tenderness of heart, but it's based on very humane values, you know, because. He tends to be lampooning the powerful, mm. tends to be quite sympathetic to underdogs and outsiders. I think like the, the women in his films are often powerful, sexually aggressive, for instance, the men, by contrast, quite timid and passive. 
But I think in terms of this film, Jewishness is quite important to that, isn't it? Because it seems like Jewish humour is informed by that long history of oppression that Jewish people have suffered and that wit becomes something of a weapon that can be wielded against the people oppressing them, you know? Um, it's a recurring motif, isn't it? That the joke about Hitler, like there's like a recurring story thread in here that has nothing to do with the main plot about a joke that's going round Warsaw about Hitler. Um, yeah. And interestingly as well, the, that the word Jew is never uttered in the film, is it? Which maybe we can discuss in the yeah. spoiler for, in the spoiler zone. Yeah. Yes, because and there's there's a lot in there that's codified as Jewish, but it's not explicitly mentioned. I think as well, um, and and for myself, probably actually, which is which is quite something on a movie that I've literally just watched. Um, I think we talked on when I've been on um the movie palace before the weird irony of be, being on the movie palace in that I I am sometimes maybe not as affectionate for the kind of era of code era Hollywood as as a lot of people are. In we that only I, started watching movies in two thousand eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Before when, that, when, I never existed. When you became you, you were asked to be a critic, and yeah. then you were like, "I guess I gotta I watch." Guess movies I gotta watch now. all these movies. Well, no, no, and, you know that's that's the thing. <laughs> that's I when you watched X Men Origins Wolverine. Yes, which was the first movie I reviewed as a critic, which is striking. That's that's in the the in the little uh, so anything pre X Men Origins Wolverine. It's in cinema. Kind of. It is so, in so, cinema. That, so Darren, though, is is that mild disdain for old Hollywood? Is that because of the code? The idea that the code is you know, definitionally um, sexist, racist, homophobic, you know, is that part of it? Okay, well, I will push back on mild disdain. Mild disdain <laughs> makes it sound okay. like a much stronger emotion. I, I I, think it's more that I, what, and again, Andrew, I think repeatedly on this, Andrew has at several points this podcast compared me to Garth Malenghi, and I'm going to own that now in this moment. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I've, I've written more books than I've read, I think you said at one point, for example. <laughs> um, which is, <laughs> which, I don't I, mean that. I, I didn't I mean, realize. like, you read lots of books. They just have pictures in them. <laughs> That's a very fair point. Um, but what what I was going to say was I'm going to own that. And it's it's the, you know, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. Um, I think one of my big issues are kind of like 40s era, a kind of code era production is that it pushes a lot of, interesting stuff to the margins yeah. or underneath instead of talking about it and and you know i wouldn't be so strong as to say kind of like racist sexist uh homophobic but i do think that like putting those explicitly outside the frame and leaving them only there by inference does rob a lot of stuff that you could talk about i, I find earlier stuff more interesting i find you know stuff that was happening in europe in the 1950s more interesting and i i am like every terrible film person online a big fan of new hollywood um so <laughs> yeah. you know i i, I own those things um, but i actually that that's what i was gonna say is that i really really love this um and i think that maybe it's that lubitz touch that thing that i didn't know existed until i started doing research for this podcast but that ability to sneak so much in around the kind of restrictions that exist um and because it's a comedy and because it's a thriller, it manages to do all of that remarkably well with incredible deft and grace. It is, like, really, really funny. I laughed out loud repeatedly. I don't know if I laughed ten times because I don't count my laughs. I'm not that much of a robot. Um, but I, I did laugh repeatedly. There are some brilliant one-liners in here. Um, but also watching it, I was like, I, I would have difficulty believing that you could get away with some of this stuff in a studio film today, yeah. let alone in 1942. Yeah. Uh, in particular, well, the, the line that caused so much controversy in reviews, which we might get to in the spoiler zone. But yeah, sorry, Andrew. Yeah, but the the reason the reason it wouldn't get past 
it wouldn't get made. Sorry, I'm going to be very cynical and say, like, it wouldn't get made today, but not because of, like, moral concerns. It, would, it wouldn't get get made because of money. Because presumably, if, 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 if it was a satire, it would be saying something important about something that's happening in the world. And I don't think Hollywood would let that. I think... Well, so, sorry. No, no, no. That, 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 obviously, there's, 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 there's plenty of exceptions and there's great Hollywood movies getting made which are, you know, speaking to the moment that we're in. But there are certain things that you don't talk about um, in, 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 in Hollywood, I guess. And World War II, like we, while we World War II. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> things you can't talk about in Hollywood yeah. anymore. Yes. I think what's interesting about this film in particular is it was quite a daring undertaking because I think after 1933, most Hollywood studios were trying to de-emphasize Jewish characters and stories. Um, you know, even American anti-Nazi films during wartime were rarely referencing the plight of European Jews that overtly, you know. I think you had this situation where the studios were trying to face both ways, which is a, a, a trend throughout Hollywood history, I think, where they were trying to align with the policy of the Allies whilst also not attracting the ire of anti-Semites, you know. It kind of reminds me kind of reminds me how you get things today like the star wars films try to include same-sex representation with couples kissing or whatever but in such a way that you can cut it out so that it can be shipped to china you know that kind of thing where you're trying to face both ways um yeah, i think mayor's argument was that it, like mayor louis b mayor argued like despite being a jewish man himself his argument was that he didn't want to draw attention to the fact that the studios were run by jewish people uh, because he was worried about not necessarily even like German markets, but the idea of like Americans being realizing that, oh, my God, this industry is controlled by Jewish people and what the reaction would be. So his idea was to just avoid it entirely and not bring it up and pretend that it was never happening, which is, is stunning. That whole that whole trope of such and such an industry being being run by the Jews, like it often happens because Jewish people are excluded from other industries. Yeah. And then there's all this panic when it's like, oh, they're, they're bankers and jewelers. It's like, well, that wasn't considered a Christian thing to do. So they, they, that's what they were kind of relegated um, to because they were, weren't allowed into, into guilds. Um, Movies weren't considered like, an art form. Like, so that's why you yeah, ended up they, with so much influence there. It's like, oh, yeah, but now they are. So we should be worried about exactly. it. Exactly. And they, there's... <laughs> It always becomes this thing where it's like those, like um, how mendacious of them to go into the, the, like and one of the few industries that they were that they were allowed um, to to kind of anyway. Sorry, um, I was just going to say that um, you know I mean? in ter- in terms of war films or films about the Jewish experience during the wartime, I think Chaplin's The Great Dictator is a, a good counterexample. Um, but his film existed in a more purely comic form than Lubitsch's, I think, which, as we've said, kind of uh, blends in these dramatic elements too. Uh, Plus, he was a communist and predated the war as well. And what? Sorry, and, pre- and predated the war um, as well. Yeah, actually. the great dictator. Oh, and as Andrew said, he was a communist. Sorry, that was Andrew's <laughs> observation. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I beg his pardon. Um, uh, no, they didn't. Didn't it kind of kind of um, didn't it release a little a, a little late? That it it's kind of like um, the. Gr- the Great Dictator was 1940. So it, it, predate, it like predated American yeah. entry into the war. Like that was a th- like one of the into reasons the why yeah. Chaplin was considered why one of the reasons why Chaplin was considered a communist, as you pointed out there, was that he was prematurely anti-fascist, which is a stunning thing to like exist in American public consciousness in the 50s. Right. He was against Hitler, but he was against Hitler before the country was against Hitler. Therefore, he was sympathetic to communism. Therefore, 
he was a traitor in our midst, which is stunning. That's anyway, sorry, that's that's a separate mm. discussion for people far more qualified than me to delve into. But yeah, that 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 amazes me. But it's it's a funny thing as well in America because it's it's kind of it, there 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 became this sort of reckoning in the forties and fifties to separate um, New Deal progressives from um, uh, um, communists, like you 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 know, like fellow travelers. And people who supported the Allies, the USSR during during the war, from from um, uh, you know, did from 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 foreign agents who've been sent to kind of undermine uh, democracy. And I don't think there was there was, there was pe- people were terribly fussed whether like you know um, guilty people or sorry whether innocent people were 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 found guilty. Mm-hmm. Anyway, like I, I suppose we're not saying anything new. The, the hottest news from 1956 um, is what we have here today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's our hot take. McCarthyism, questionable at best. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anti-Semitism, yeah. wrong. Um, and then, so to round up, final question yeah. then. If listeners have not seen To Be or Not To Be, Carl, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go out and stream it? It is available, I think, on Criterion in the States. Don't know if it's available on BFI in the UK. I had to buy a Korean version DVD, which um, you surprised me. It surprised me how difficult the film was to find, actually. Um, I think there may have been an earlier DVD release that was out of print, but uh, I couldn't find that. Um, just to jump back to something we were saying earlier, I do think the code was um, racist and sexist, by the way, because I think the idea of sexual deviancy, which included things like homosexuality, um, means that. So yeah, I'll just check that in. Um doesn't mean I don't like the Hollywood era. I do think that's worth, worth acknowledging. Um, yes, I would recommend people go and watch the film. I think this podcast will have much less entertainment value if people haven't seen the film we're discussing. <laughs> I think it might have some entertainment value if they have seen it. Um, yeah, it might be, I think it's worth the effort. Like I said, I had to battle to find it, but I'm really glad I did. We will put all our ads in the pre-roll, so it doesn't matter if they listen <laughs> to the rest of it. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that people watch uh, To Be or Not To Be? Yeah, I would. I would. Um, absolutely. Um, I didn't know it existed. Um, like, I feel like I've already said too much because I had the joy of turning this on and not knowing what it was and being surprised and, and find, find, finding it very funny and of having no expectations of it, which, which, which is so precious. So, yes, um, watch it before listening to what we've said already <laughs> um, yeah i'd recommend people. just hit refresh on your your memory your short-term memory yeah, um, yeah. do that do that uh, men in black thing but be yeah. careful because that can go wrong like yeah <laughs> and also just uh write down need to watch to be or not to be before doing it otherwise it's a yes, purpose yeah. uh, the movie not Mel Brooks. <laughs> Not Mel Brooks on yeah. underline. Um, and I, I would, I would kind of third that recommendation as well. Make it three of a kind there. Yep, yeah, this was a joy. Uh, first time watching it. Um, this week for this podcast, and yeah, fantastic. Loved it. Uh, well worth your time. With that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. So, Carl, what is To Be or Not To Be about for you? So, in a nutshell, the film is about a group of Polish actors who impersonate Gestapo officers to save themselves and the Polish underground. So, appropriately then, I think it's a film about performance, because 
obviously in the sense that it's about actors, also in the sense that there's a broader emphasis on the idea of acting, I think. It comes with the idea that there's this kind of porousness between what represents real life or reality and what represents the illusion of acting. So I think we see things in the film like the discussion about what type of acting is appropriate for a play about the Nazis in the early scenes of the film. We get actors playing at being Nazis, both in real life and on stage, and they go on to fool the real thing. Uh, we see performed versions of real characters sometimes, sometimes before we meet the real thing. So I think we see the impression of Colonel Earhart that Jack Benny does before we meet the character himself. And fake Hitler before real Hitler. And you don't even see real Hitler's face. You just see the back of real you Hitler's You see him from behind, don't you? Yeah. Um, I think that emphasis on simulation is appropriate for Lubitsch because I believe he was sort of famous as an actor's director. Um, like, for instance, I think he helped turn, there's a Polish actress, uh, Pola Negri, and he made her, helped her, helped her become an international star. And he was known for acting out scenes for his performers to show them exactly what he expected and wanted. So, yeah, I think it's about acting as part of the way it comically approaches Nazism, I think. The, the title as well and the, the kind of, um, the um the way kind of structurally it starts and finishes is with with um Hamlet works as well because of the the play within the play um um aspect from that as well being being mirrored in 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 the film itself so like like I I, I wonder how much of that uh, like I mean it must be intentional like the 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 but the way the 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 way it structurally works the way the way some scenes are repeated as well. Yeah. Um is 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 wonderful where where we have like the the you know the crime line version of it. <laughs> and, and then we have the the real um, yeah. uh and it's hilarious yeah. when 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 there is um kind of callbacks uh as as well. Um, they call me concentration camp Earhart. <laughs> That's very uh, which funny. Is, and or the, like yeah, they even so tell the funny. joke, the joke about Hitler. Like the, the it opens with like Jack Benny playing Earhart, hearing the joke about Hitler, and then you get later on that same scene playing out again, and literally the same beat for beat stuff, where it's like, oh, you're not going to tell him, are you? Like literally, yeah. like frame for frame, which is, is stunning. The, the the funniest thing for me about that scene was about how how awkward and because you know. That's that he's playing a character and that he doesn't have lines. So he's just he's just awkwardly saying this line over and over again. But then when you play it again, you <sighs> realize, very funny. oh, people do that. You know, that, yeah. that's like a normal thing for a person to do when they don't have anything to say. They just, you know, make inane small talk and repeat things they've already heard. Um, over and laugh and over to again. fill the silence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think what's I think part of what's so funny about that is that as hammy as those protagonists can be, they've actually got nothing on the Nazis, really, because we see that very funny approximation of the colonel. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just the idea that he runs out of dialogue so quickly is very funny to me. Uh, but then when we meet Earhart, we realise that actually he had a pretty good handle on the part. If anything, he was kind of underplaying it, you know, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, Earhart is somehow more of a caricature than Jack yeah. Benny playing Earhart, which is remarkable as well. Um, to bring it back to Hamlet, actually, just because obviously that's the title of the movie and, the, the you know, it's kind of framed with performances of Hamlet and stuff like that. And again, one of the, the big jokes for audiences, and we'll probably come back to talking about Benny kind of later on because Benny's a fascinating character but one of the big jokes for audiences watching this in 1942 was the idea of jack benny playing hamlet which is comparable to jerry seinfeld <laughs> playing hamlet to get a kind of a sense of how weird this must have looked to audiences yeah. but like one of the things that you know in the i think the 18th century one of the big criticisms of hamlet was that it did not adhere to aristotle's kind of unities um and it was 
that it blended comedy and tragedy um, and farce and tragedy um, in a way that did not conform to Aristotle's kind of poetics. And, you know, Hamlet being generally regarded as one of the greatest works uh, in the English language and art and literature and the history of culture. Um, maybe it's a bit arrogant to invoke it when talking about a screwball comedy from 1942, but I do think that there is something oh, clever in the idea. Yeah, in the idea that this is similar in that it's taking something tragic and playing it kind of comedically as opposed to what's almost the inverse in Hamlet, where you have yeah. like things like the, the play and kind of the, the sense in which, you know, kind of all the weird stuff that happens in Hamlet, you know? We we don't take Aristotle's distinctions in the poetics as seriously on the two fifty. We made a decision at the beginning. <laughs> that <laughs> we weren't to going to the poetic unity. Yep, that's yeah. <laughs> I think my favorite moment about the Hamlet stuff though is when, when he first comes on stage and the guy beneath the stage is like whispering to be or not to be, you know, probably the most famous passage of dialogue in any play ever. <laughs> you know, and he needs and a prompt. Um, but, I, I, but no, there's a book on. Sorry, there's a book on the film by Peter Barnes, who's a dramatist, and he says that the, a lot of the theatrical detail in the film is accurate. Um, he's pointing to things like how you know the guy playing Hitler um, comes in and adds the line "Hail myself," you know, and um, they have that discussion with the director, and the director says, "So what? What? What's your line? Or what does it say?" He says, "Nothing." Well, say nothing. He says that kind of interplay is very kind of apropos. He says. Um, <laughs> I, th I think the screenwriter, I, I think Lubitsch is interesting because apparently he had no problem with writers. He enjoyed working with good writers, um, which means he contrasts with someone like Hitchcock, who often had complicated relationships with his writers. Um, but the screenwriter here, Edwin Justice Mayers, um, he, he was a playwright, he had extensive knowledge of the theatre. So it means you don't get like an outsider's view of the theatre. Um, and of course, it goes with that theme of the idea of everything, life and politics and nazism it's all uh, some form of show business you know and i mean even so even things like say um like and again the way in which the theater kind of collapses into reality and reality kind of collapses yeah. outwards so like you have the sequence where they're trying to fool kind of stiletsky and they take him into the set dress office um and that looks like a kind of a commandant's office and he's being interviewed their colonel's office is being interviewed there but he escapes into the theater and you have this amazing, it's an amazing sequence because it's inside a theater, but it's like a prison break sequence from something yeah. like The Great Escape, where you have yeah. them like walking through rows looking for him, like they're hunting him in tall grass, for example, or he runs out on stage and they put the spotlight on him again, yeah. like it's a prison break. And I like, I love that. And we'll probably come back to this in terms of tone. Like this is, this is a spoof and a farce, but it's a farce where people die and there are real stakes. So let's see gets like shot and killed. And he gets shot and killed on the set from Hamlet, which is quite striking yeah. as well. Which, and again, it's all very, and then becomes part of the scenery. They like you discover later they apparently just stuffed his body into a piece on the set, a piece of set, which is remarkable as well. Well, I mean, in, in Paris, and th this is this is what I I don't know is this a stretch? I mean, Darren, you'll definitely tell me. But when <laughs> when 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 we were talking about Hamlet, I'm kind of wondering. In 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 Paris, is this a kind of a a a safe way of of playing out a a Jewish revenge fantasy like 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 Inglorious Bastards or like Munich? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, obviously Munich is based on 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 real events, but that 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 idea of kind of um, exorcising or like processing yeah. the anger um uh felt about what happened and what happened um through uh collaborators who may still be alive as well um 
I, th- I, would, I think you can sort of read the Greenberg character, who's played by Felix uh, Bressart, as almost the hero of the piece. Yeah, you know? definitely. Because um, he's, he's fourth o- build, I think, Jewish. Isn't he? He's like he's fourth build, despite arguably yeah. not having that much to do. He arguably features less yeah. than say Tom Duggan as Bronski playing Hitler, for example. But he has, a, he has a very pivotal role, I think, and he is the most overtly Jewish character. Apparently, this is Liebich's first American film with an overtly Jewish character, which is interesting. There are other characters that are maybe implicitly Jewish. Like, I think you can read Benny's character that way, because Benny's real name was Benny Kabelski. He's been called a classic Schlemiel kind of archetype. But I think his Jewish identity remained more covert for mainstream audiences. But Greenberg has been considered Lubitsch's mouthpiece, apparently, because yeah. he plays the kind of minor role. He's just one of the spear carriers, isn't he? Um, he plays that kind of minor role that Lubitsch had played in the theatre 30 years earlier in Berlin. Um, he recites Shylock's famous speech from The Merchant of Venice, I think three times during the course of the film, um, which is yeah. a speech... It's very powerful as well. It is, yeah. And it's a speech Lubitsch had performed at uh, an audition in the 1910s that got him into the Max Reinhardt theatre troupe. Um he makes that joke, Greenberg, doesn't he, about, like I say, he's never explicitly referred to as Jewish, but there's that ham actor played by um, Lionel Atwill. Yeah. And he says, what you are, I couldn't eat, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, think it's, I, th- I think it's nice because he accomplishes his dream of playing Shylock, which leads to the Polish resistance being saved. So actually that speech is edited because in, in the Shakespeare play, it contains the word Jew. In this film, it doesn't. Um but Greenberg is clearly Jewish, and then he disappears from the film. So maybe that's an example of Lubitsch's tendency to omit so usual, unusual things. But I think you can still sort of see him as the hero, or one of them. And hilarious, like, kind of, for 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 the audience, it's obvious. But, like, in case it's not obvious, there there is there is there is the scene at the end where he comes out of a door and just... And everybody sees him, and they immediately, like, jump to the same conclusion. And it, it like... Um, it's it is insane how um how that can be played for laughs, but but yeah. it is hilarious. It, it's 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 a it's a it's a very funny gag. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, like you mentioned, the fact it's done three times. It's and it's that thing that you like. It's how wonderfully talked about. Like this is a farce, and it is incredibly funny. It it moves incredibly limbly. Andrew was right when he said before the spoiler zone. It has a lot of plot. It's a very heavily plotted farce as well, and it just well, moves most, so most farces are like the, the, yeah. the like all kind of what uh, comedy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of stuff. Sorry, uh, sorry. Have you heard the Francois Truffaut quote about the plot? Which is, he said, I could challenge you, for example, to recount the plot of To Be or Not To Be an hour after having seen it, even if it were for the sixth time, impossible. You know, <laughs> which I, I don't know. I had no problem following no. it, but I kind of know what he means. Yeah, yeah, that, that's totally fair. Like, be, 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 and, and with with a lot, and I like um, a a a movie with with a, with a with a kind of a. Um, I guess what would you say serpentine um uh plot and I like trying to figure it out and I don't mind if once the movie is over I figured out the plot and I'm wrong you know or if I can if I can't quite remember it because yeah it's it's about the experience when watching it I guess um, No I mean I I would agree with that I think that like 
I think in terms of how well structured it is, you get like a lot of things where they're introduced. I think Carl mentioned this introduces comedies or as jokes. So the idea of like Hitler and he's in Warsaw and it's hilarious. And then it's like, oh, by the way, Warsaw is now demolished after the Nazis arrived. You get that contrast there. Yeah. You get things like, again, that the sequence is played with Earhart and it's like, you know, it's a spoof scene and it's like, oh, we're in a theater performing a play and that's like life and death. And the way in which even that speech that kind of like famous Shylock speech like it's introduced as well you know I'm an actor who dreams of having a moment on the stage carrying a spear and it's kind of silly that I dream of this big Shakespearean soliloquy while wearing this silly hat and carrying this spear and then the next time you see it they're clearing out the rubble and it becomes sadder and then they play it again the third time and it's even more tense because and and more dramatic and more earned because it's the climax of the movie as well and it's the point of it though that kind of, of of that soliloquy. Yeah. That that and that I can't help but think, and maybe this is naive, but e- even they kind of um the 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 crowd that is gathered, how they couldn't be moved by it. And realize the essential truth of that there there is and and this 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 is gonna sound facile, but that there is one race, there's the human race, and and thus like you know because i i i think people take it for granted now like the um um i guess how much how much intolerance there is and some some of it's very small but that the this 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 whole idea of of people being different or other where if you if you prick them do they not bleed and if you tickle them don't do do they not laugh like it's it's we're we're Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um. No, I think I think that's interesting in terms of the way the Nazis are depicted as well, because I think yes. there are a couple of key moments here for me. So one is when, I think it's a very funny moment, but it's when Earhart says that he signs so many orders of execution that he can't be expected to remember every single one, you know. And then there's his later comment that what Chura did to Shakespeare, it's when Chura's actually in front of him dressed as uh, Selecki, I think. What Chura did to Shakespeare, the Nazis are doing now to Poland. And I think that second comment in particular has been accused of being in bad taste. But I think they get to the heart of the matter in a very perceptive way because you get the sense from the Nazis in this film that they're evil in very unimpressive ways. You know, I think the idea that the Nazis lack grace and politeness is kind of a big sin for somebody like Lubitsch, who made his name with these sophisticated comedies. Um, you know, it's all about style and <laughs> glittering surfaces and things. Um, so I think the approach he takes where you've got this vaudeville inflected comedy, which I think is hilariously funny at times, is appropriate because that's a, a nice way to deflate sort of vanity and bullying. And what I like about the portrayal of the Nazis is they're not kind of placed over there in the way that Nazis often are in, in films, you know. They're often presented as being behind, you know, beyond the boundaries of what human behavior is. And sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes. Well, they're, they're like amoral and stupid. So like, like, like they, they, even, even the characters who aren't stupid, like, uh, um, uh, Selesky, he has very kind of simple ideas and doesn't, doesn't really seem to appreciate like the whole, you know, moral space. And she she skewers it wonderfully by saying, "Oh, but uh, what are we going to do about my conscience?" Because, yeah, because <laughs> he's he's saying um, you can come, you can. There's two sides in this. Um, there's the right side, 
And you know it's the right side because we're winning. Because it wins. Yes, because <laughs> that's how you know yeah. it's the right side. I mean, like, this, and, this is kind of interesting because this gets at what Carl was saying there about it's notable that the movie parallels that Shylock speech, that kind of like, Prickos, do we not bleed speech, with a similar speech from Seleski himself when he's kind of pitching himself to Maria. Do I look like a monster? Yeah. We're just like other people. We love to sing. We love to dance. We admire beautiful women. We're human and sometimes very human. And again, I think Carl's right. Like movies about Nazis tend to be like, these are inhuman monsters. They're, you know, like Green Room is basically a monster movie with neo-Nazis playing the monsters in it to pick an example. But like, there's lots of examples across history of that. And I think it's it's interesting that like, even though, and Andrew's right to point out that they are like, the Nazis are boorish, they're stupid, they're very driven by base desires, but and most amoral. of the other ca- amoral that that's it it's the amorality is the big difference because i would argue that like you know joseph tora the jack benny character is just as vain just as stupid just as self-interested but he has a moral spine to him that kind of i think this is it i think yeah because selecki's like the urbane face of nazism and he kind of justifies it but he also hits one of the key ideas in another line he says in real life it's even more important that you choose the right side so I think it's an emblematic line. It's just ironic when it's coming from him because it, it gets to that idea that if we're all playing a part to some extent, like I say, and I think the film's in large part about the performances we give in, in both life and in theatre. But if we're all playing a part, what's really important is your reasons for taking on those parts that you're choosing to play, you know. Yeah. So I think it's powerful. I think Lubitsch has talked about how, I think he said, despite being farcical, to be or not to be was a truer picture of Nazism than was shown by most novels, magazine stories, and pictures which deal with the same subject. I think I've also seen a quote from him. He felt that the so-called underground spirit amongst the German people never really existed and was kind of a, kind of a fiction, basically. So, and yeah. It's the kind of office politics of it and the, like the, 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 the and, and the, and the kind of, um, Stu- stupid people in charge, I guess. Like, 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 be, be, because he's like, oh, um, how did you let him get away? Why didn't you arrest him? Go out and arrest everybody. And then, and then he comes back and he's like, why are you arresting everybody? Stop arresting so many people. Why'd you kill those people? Um, and, and, and he's, and, and he's giving them orders. And then when they say like, oh, you, you gave the order, it's like, oh, you're shifting the responsibility. <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's... Which, which is somewhat ironic given, you know, what would happen after the war where you'd have the discussion about like, and again, there's a lot in this movie that reads somewhat ironically given what would happen in the years that followed. Um, but I, I do think it's notable. Yeah. So to bring it back to Selesky, like, I would argue Selesky is the most developed Nazi character. I, obviously, he dies um, around, say, the, the two-third mark, and then you have Earhart moving into the antagonistic role. But Selesky, for most of the movie, is the embodiment of Nazism. He's the guy who gets to make the argument, as it were, for Nazism philosophically. He's the guy who gets the big speeches. And he, he never wears a Nazi uniform. He doesn't wear that distinctive kind of Nazi uniform that you expect a Nazi to wear. And he's presented as urbane and cultured and sophisticated. Um, and he's, he's pre- like, I find well that liked fascinating. As well. Yeah, well liked as well. Yeah. And yeah. charming and kind of like, and, and debonair. And I kind of Trusted. like, I like, yeah. By, I mean, by all you know, of you, the, you kind of the, the um, Polish airmen. airmen. Yeah. yeah, you do get that small scene that kind of hints at it, where he's not singing along with them when they're talking about like dropping bombs on Hitler. And by the way, I do like that. 
that scene where they're all singing, the RAF boys are singing about dropping bombs on Hitler kind of gets at the importance of performativity, which we'll come back to. Because there's a lot in this movie, I think, yeah. about like how important it is to be able to laugh at these things as horrible as they are in order to like remain human or in order to like process these terrible things that are happening around you. Yeah. But I do, I do think that like making Selesky a very human character is a very conscious choice that kind of stands to the movie's credit, particularly at a time when you would imagine movies that are being designed for, you know, propagandist purposes would want to present the Nazis as this faceless, monstrous enemy horde that need to be eliminated or destroyed. And they're nothing like us. There's nothing in them that resembles anything that we quantify or codify as humanity. I find it fascinating the movie goes, actually, no, they are human. And that's why they're terrifying. They're just humanity without any without any of that cumbersome morality or conscience um that we associate that yeah, we kind of because it's it's a sort of the, the the um it's this sort of scientism that marked a lot of the 20th century where they they they, they like trying to um you know social darwinism taking an idea of the enlightenment kind of like and and, and pushing it into um politics um and the, the 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 whole idea of that being kind of like you you one 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 has their kind of ideas of human decency and you know solidarity and um you know the 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 the, the precepts kind of that that we would have associated with maybe religion but um but it's not scientific kind of so so you, you know that that there were there was there was a lot of kind of extremism in the, in the in the 20th century that that um that claimed kind of objectivity and of course ob- objectivity is not the greatest um capacity of man or uh, sorry of, of of humankind um yeah yeah i think the stuff with Soletsky also speaks to the film's blend of styles and, and genres, doesn't it? Because I think he's introduced in the more sort of serious uh, portions of the film. Um, I think what Lubitsch said was that he was tired of the fact that the two main recipes were you could do a drama with some comedy relief or you could do a comedy with some dramatic relief. And he didn't want to relieve anybody from anything, is what he said. <laughs> you know, be dramatic when the situation demands it. Uh, be funny when that's called for. And he said, you, you could call it a tragical farce or a farcical tragedy. He didn't care, neither did the audience. But I wonder if that's part of what makes the film or made the film difficult for critics of the time to appreciate. I wonder if that kind of discombobulated um, some of those people who didn't like it on first release, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you mentioned that quote from him. I think that quote from him came from a New York Times rebuttal. It's an article, yeah, An it? article he yeah. wrote for the New York Times explicitly responding to the criticism of his movie because when it came out it came out shortly after america joined the war and people were like what what the hell is this this is in terrible taste this is horrible why would you do why would you make a movie like this um and yeah his his response was yeah i was kind of i was sick and tired of as you pointed out it's either a comedy or a thriller it has to be one or the other there has to be this firm delineation between the two and i like one of the things watching it i really liked is that it it manages to blend the two and i think like this this is one of the interesting things in terms of theme because you mentioned it's about performativity and you mentioned it's about acting and like 
on the 250, a recurring trope that we keep going back to is that Hollywood loves making movies about how important acting is as a profession and how important <laughs> yeah. like filmmaking and storytelling is as a profession. And it absolutely is. But, you know, sometimes it feels like the, the emphasis on it is disproportionate. One of the things that I actually like about To Be or Not To Be is that while it is definitely about that in that like it's very definitely about the importance of the arts and of the importance of acting and the importance of performance, um, it's also not just about that in that it's made very clear that in order for these people to, like, save the Polish underground and to save Poland and save Warsaw, it isn't enough that they make jokes of the Nazis. It isn't enough that they outwit them using their skills as performers. It's made very clear consistently that they are going to have to kill Selecki. And it's also made yeah. very clear that, like, the work that they are doing is significantly less important than the work that the actual underground is doing, actually destroying the Nazi infrastructure. And again, the idea that you have the Robert Stack character, who would be the protagonist in, in you know, a much more serious war film as well, but that he, yeah. he shows up and he gets to kill Stiletsky. He's the guy who shoots Stiletsky with his revolver as well. And the idea that, like, this is just one facet. You don't... Because, like, yeah, I... I I'm sorry, this is one where Darren gets on a kind of a soapbox or whatever. Like, the past the past couple of years have been very interesting to watch because you have this big discussion about, like, the role of comedy and the role that comedy plays in politics and in discourse and in defeating bad ideas that do terrible things and hurt people. And the idea that if you mock something, that diminishes its power and takes it away. And it, it does to an extent, but there there are limits. And... It can feel I mean, if trite you do to it say. well, is is key maybe. And I I, like I, the, I I I think I think like they, there there's a lot of bad faith in the in the contemporary argument about like oh that, get get politics out of my comedy and it's like is it just that it's not the, the kind of politics you like? Um, whereas kind of like I I think some of those arguments go away when 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 the comedy is actually funny. Um, um, but I, I do also think, though, that like you have things like the idea of and again, sorry to date the podcast, but things like, say, you know, Donald Trump and the idea that a lot of people are like, look, if you keep mocking him and if you turn him into a joke, he, he can't win. He, he can't come close to winning a second time. He can't enact his his policy. He can't reshape the political party around him. If you reduce him to a joke, you will defeat him that way. Um and that is not what happened at all. And we can argue, you know, about whether or not it was a problem that the comedy just wasn't good or whatever. But I do find it interesting that, like, oh, back sorry, the... I say some of it was not good. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's no, more, 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 more concern with kind of like speaking to an audience who've already made their mind up about Trump and less concerned with being funny and, um, and reaching other people and reaching out and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. But I. I, I do find it in like I think it it's very it speaks very well to do be or not to be that it yeah. it doesn't fall back on the trite well look we can defeat the Nazis by laughing at them line it understands that like laughing at them and exposing them and kind of mocking them and interrogating them has value and worth and is worth doing and is worthy of a subject of itself but it doesn't pat itself on the back and say well job done thank good we thank goodness we kind of mock them. I liked Sorry, as well how it undercut the um, Hollywood's love love affair with itself. In 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 terms of you had this you had the the character Sabinsky, who's going to the theater every night, and <laughs> assumes that kind of like 
his knowledge makes him a better theater person. is no, but no, that 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 his knowledge of theater is the public's knowledge of theater, and the actors as well always assume the same thing. So he goes over to England, and he he's he's like, um, this the this guy Selesky. He'd never heard of Maria Jura. It's like, we haven't heard of him either. And it's like, yeah, but that would be very strange in, in Poland yeah. for anybody not to have heard of. And he, he's kind of taking it for granted that like, you, you know, the, the, this guy Sabinski, he's on film Twitter and he's having a conversation <laughs> with like a, 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 yeah. you know, um, uh, about Ernest Joe Lubitz. Um, yeah, yeah, about, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it, yeah, just on the idea of, Comedy. I think because that's what's so interesting about reading about this film is that some critics found the subject matter to be just bad taste beyond the pale, you know. So like Bosley Crowther, who's reliably wrong on, on lots of things, but his <laughs> reviews, no, his reviews are quite easy to find online. So he's always a good one to quote, but he said a callous comedy, a shocking compression of realism and romance. You might almost think Mr. Lubitsch had the attitude of anything for a laugh, but he wasn't alone in this case. I think, um, C.A. Lejeune, who wrote for the Observer newspaper over here in England, um, to my mind, a farce set against the agonies of Bond Warsaw is in the poorest of tastes, especially as the film makes no attempt to ignore them. I mean, you could argue it would have been in worse taste to ignore them, I think, but anyway. And, and then Dillis Powell in the Sunday Times, like, praised the actors. I think a lot of people who didn't like the film often said, well, Carol Lombard was very good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but she said, is the joke funny? Is the background of terror in Poland funny? with its constant reminders of the frightful reality. I find myself wondering how America just now would take a brilliant bit of farce about Pearl Harbor and how we in this country should react to a perfect scream about the fall of Hong Kong. So that's interesting. Like, is there any subject matter that's not appropriate for a comedy? Is it almost impossible? Some people would say it's almost impossible to approach the Holocaust without being manipulative, for instance. But I feel like you've got to sort of take it case by case. You can't really preclude the possibility that somebody will come up with something that's dazzlingly funny no matter what the topic i think but yeah. what do you guys think i don't i i i i didn't find pearl harbor funny <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was a bad movie <laughs> um, <laughs> but um but i don't think that there are um topics um that can't be um made made, made fun of i think i think there there are topics that can be made fun of that people are not going to find funny you know and um and that maybe I'd find it funny, and that maybe they won't, and maybe they have good reasons for not finding it funny. Like if 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 there was something that that, like one one example, like a, a, a very soft example of this, uh, like something I didn't find funny is being in the UK, and hearing a lot of kind of um, when 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 I lived in London at the time, I think Keith Lemon was doing one of these shows, and one of the catchphrases because there was an Irish, um, like guest or something was a uh, potato, and 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 I would hear that all the time, like directed at me, and I didn't find it funny, <laughs> um, and like, and I I guess I I I kind of had a good humor about it because I realized that like. I'm not meant to find it funny. I am the uh, the butt of the, the joke. The butt of the joke, and sometimes I'll I'll make jokes, and other people will be the butt of the joke, and maybe maybe they won't find it funny. I'll have to apologize, and I'm fine with that. But but it it it, it, it maybe it was funny for me. <laughs> maybe it was funny for other people. Um, yeah, but it like like there is a question of sensitivity, but I but I don't think it's possible for a, a a subject matter to be kind of 
um intrinsically unfunny that that because i think if 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 it was we then there would be certain people who wouldn't be able to process it um you know well comedy is a genre that you can't really quantify like again we joke about the six laugh test but like the six laughs for me are different than the six laughs for andrew and that sort of stuff it is impossible to like that's the whole point of you like i think when it's the same for sad movies like you can emotions anything that requires an emotional response yeah. yeah I love that Andrew, Andrew earlier on was when we were talking about like theories of humor, Andrew was like, yes, and theories of humor are nonsense because it's either funny or it's not, which is true because it is actually either funny or not to you as an individual like audience member. Yeah. Um, I do think that like time helps though in these cases as well. I was going to bring this up. Yeah. Like I think that like to be or not to be is much better regarded today um, than it was on its initial release. And I think even say Team America World Police to pick an example which I think like the Irish Times named the second best movie of the 2000s uh, on initial release. People were like, is this funny? This seems rather tasteless and tacky. Why are we doing this? What's the point of it? And I would argue it's somewhat comparable to Doobie or Not. Because there's, there's that idea of comedy equals tragedy plus time, isn't there? Which I think is often attributed to Mark Twain, who may have said humor equals tragedy plus time. Um, but I think it's also associated with this, the American TV personality, Steve Allen, had said something. He said... When I explained to a friend recently that the subject matter of most comedy is tragic, he said, do you mean to tell me that the dreadful events of the day are a fit subject for humorous comment? The answer is no, but they will be pretty soon. So I think there is something to that. Yeah. I mean, there's the classic Marx quote about like how history repeats itself first as tragedy, second as farce. And I do yeah. think like, again, not to not to bring to back to like the structure of the movie. I love that the structure of to be or not to be inverts that. So like you constantly see things as farce and then as tragedy, <laughs> yeah. which is very clever as well. But yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a fair observation. I th- I I think I think that's kind of being challenged, kind of in in I I think like like as in when 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 it comes to kind of publicly consumable, you know, popular comedy, I think that is true. But I think like comedy per se is always trying to push the sometimes disastrously. Um, and sometimes successfully, but, but, it, it, and, 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 so, you know, sometimes it's disastrous and you're never going to hear from that comedian again because their, their, their career they're is burnt, over. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and for other comedians, it's their stock and trades. Like the, 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 the whole kind of, um, Gilbert Godfrey thing. Not that he's a particularly successful comedian, and he would probably agree. But, but he's um, a name. You know him, and you know his he, voice, yeah, and you know his face. He, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he got to perform in, at Disneyland. Ex- <laughs> that's it. That's it. And and, and, and um, in fairness to Gilbert, he's he's done a lot of good work in recent years around kind of autism awareness. But his 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 kind of shtick was um, in part like not. It wasn't just his voice. It was about kind of making jokes when it's too soon, you know, like yeah. like like to- talking about nine eleven, and it, it, like a lot of the joke is he doesn't even have to say anything, like he he can he can start with like a setup, and you know there's going to be some kind of a punchline uh, about nine eleven, and it's going to be terrible, and everyone is kind of holding their head in their hands, and there's a kind of a nervous um, laughter, like 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 how people find that they can't stop laughing at like funerals or like inappropriate times um yeah which 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 feels very kind of real i guess when i was watching this film i was thinking about have you guys ever heard what um the filmmaker michael haneker said about schindler's list he said that there's the sequence in schindler's list where the women are led into the gas chamber or into the showers and you don't know whether it's going to be gas or water that comes out of the 
Showerhead. Um, and he thought the film was kind of reprehensible because of that. Um, and it's interesting that something like Schindler's List is kind of how you're supposed to do a story about oppressed Jews during wartime, isn't it? It's very worthy and serious. I think it's a very good film, but I think I can see what he means about that particular sequence and it being manipulative. Yeah. And yet a comic, a comic treatment such as you get in to be or not to be more obviously raises people's hackles, doesn't it? Although I think what makes it work so well is that the ideas are pointing in the right direction, you know? So yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting. I don't know. It's it is particularly difficult with this kind of subject matter. I think. I think Lubitsch manages it superbly. But yeah, yeah I mean, again, it, it's it's been pointed out. I can I listen to the commentary on the disc here, and the point was made that like it wasn't that to be or not to be was like tackling Nazism, and that was beyond the pale. Like the Great Dictator came out the year beforehand, for example. Um, the Three Stooges like had you nasty spy, which was successful enough to spawn a sequel called I'll Never Hail Again. Um, like there, it wasn't that this stuff was beyond the pale, but I think the argument was that it was a, that stuff happened before Pearl Harbor and therefore it was distant mm. and it wasn't in the public consciousness and it didn't affect American audiences as directly. And the second point that was made was that it was, it threw audiences and critics off and, and we can discuss this already because of the bending of genre and also just like the bending of like the standard narrative of this where you know you're meant to see the nazis as inhuman monsters and instead you get lines about how you know literally seeming to reference the shylock speech from the merchant of venice yeah as if to like take one of the great kind of you know anti-anti-semitism points in like literature and kind of like say oh yeah but this also logically applies to nazis if you if you prick nazis do they not bleed if you tickle nazis do they not laugh and that maybe also contributed to it feeling uncomfortable but that's i feel i feel like well maybe i'm being too kind of um generous to the movie but i i I feel like it's in bad faith when uh selesky says it that 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 is kind of sophistry when 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 it comes out of his 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 mouth that 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 he's not he's not he's not saying it because he's a victim he's saying it because he's a villain no he's saying it because he's horny and he's horny <laughs> yeah but I'm, but, I mean, like, I'm, that's, I'm not that's, saying that's... he's a villain because he's horny <laughs> <laughs> we don't make those judgments on the 250 no but but yeah. i would argue that's that's another point of the kind of humanism of it like where like and again, it's it's that that more explicit form of kind of what we told the Lubitz touch, the ability to get stuff past the censor. But you have like the paralleling of Sobinski um, and Stileski, like when they're courting Maria, and you know uh, Sobinski's like, "I can drop three tons of dynamite in thirty seconds." And in contrast, you have Stileski saying, "You know, I'll have you saying Hail Hitler by the end of the night." And like, yeah. you know, again, maybe maybe it's not tickle them, do they not laugh? But it's like put Carol Lombard in front of them in a lovely dress and do they not become immediately sexually aroused? Like, are they not also human? Do they not have the same basic human response to this stimulus? That sort of thing. That that was one of my favorite moments in the film actually is early on when Lombard appears in that 
gorgeous dress and says, you know, it's for a concentration camp scene. And she says she thought it would make a nice contrast. (laughs) (laughs) And and, Um, and again, like that, but that's like a setup and a payoff because later on, when she goes in front of the Nazis, when she goes to Selesky, she's not in rags or being tortured. She's in the the ball gown and dress looking fabulous. Like again, that, that performativity thing, it's so beautifully constructed. Sorry. It's in, it's interesting as going back to kind of like that, how, how this, this, I think, um, it is isn't one of these cases of um a, a Hollywood film kind of you know patting itself on the back for being you know <laughs> for doing like the for having <laughs> for having the best jobs in the world in the in in the best and industry, getting paid very very yeah, well yeah, yes yeah. and yeah. Be, because there's vanity in like she is she and um and and the other kind of actors are the heroes of the movie but there is vanity in everything they do yes you know that 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 well that i mean like it, joseph gives himself away because he can't help but feel angry at the fact that his wife might be cheating on him like he called him yeah, yeah. That he, he cannot get past <laughs> that he's like incapable of like masking that as an actor um because he which i love yeah i think i think that's significant because i think that's where Jack Benny, and this would have been more evident at the time if we're saying he's kind of a forgotten figure to today's audiences, but from what I can gather, his comic persona was made up of a kind of combination of meanness and vanity. So apparently on his radio show, he violated a lot of the social norms about what it means to be an American man, you know, because he was, he would be wealthy, but also a cheapskate, you know, he (laughs) thinks he's God's gift to women, God's gift to women, but unable to attract women, sophisticated, but can't handle simple situations. So I think what helps him, apparently what helped him is apparently there's quite an assiduous publicity campaign to demonstrate that he wasn't like his comic persona in real life, you know. When when you Google him, there are lots of pictures of him with small children smiling. You could tell that, yeah, this is the it. Studio is very much like we need <laughs> we need to communicate that he's a nice guy. Um, yeah, apparently the publicity very much foregrounded his family and the idea that he was benevolent. Yeah, so the interesting thing is, I think it's more his vanity that's in evidence in to be or not to be than his meanness. And it's Dude. apparently in his radio show and on TV later, his vanity would be over things like his age, but here it's displaced onto this idea that he's a great actor, um, you know, which is very funny. Well, there, there, there is the kind of age vanity as well, because he's playing Hamlet. Like that, that, <laughs> yeah. that's the ultimate kind of um, vain actor thing is like, I haven't played the Dane. It's like, you're 52. <laughs> the character is a teenager. But, but to be fair, don't know. they say you have to be at least 30? They So they recommend that most actors are 30 before they play the role of Hamlet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Life I mean, it, it is worth, like, again. What age was that, Laurence Olivier? He, he, he was in 1948. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it wasn't too egregious anyway. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, but also I feel like when you're comparing other actors to Laurence Olivier, um, you know, it, <laughs> very few actors come out particularly well. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think Laurence Olivier is better than Jack Benny. Um, Whoa, okay. <laughs> that's well, my opinion. Big, big, big claim. But the, well, what I've, read is that, what I've read is that a lot of Jack Benny's films apparently were poor, which I think must be why we don't really know him that much today. I mean, I don't. I don't know how much you guys knew about him before, but... Apparently, Lubitsch always had him. I've heard the name. Yeah, apparently, Lubitsch always had him in mind for the part, and he said to Benny that you're not a comedian, you're not even a clown, you're an actor playing the part of a comedian, and this you were doing very well. So he saw something that other people didn't. Um, and there's also a good story about Jack Benny's father, who attended a screening of To Be or Not to Be with his nurse, watched the first scene where Benny's playing a Nazi officer. Apparently, um, so he stormed out of the cinema. Benny's dad, uh, after seeing that. 
you know, shocked by the sight of it. And then later, later was told to go back and he went back and completely changed his opinion. So it kind of mirrors the response to the be or not to be in that he didn't like it the first time he saw it and then retroactively he reappraised it. So that's kind of nice. And, and this worth noting, actually, you mentioned that like we don't have that many Jack Benny movies on the list and that I think this is literally the only one. But like I'm I'm going through Benny's IMDb page here because, of course, this is an IMDb podcast and we like lists and names and stuff. I know a lot of anti-Japanese movies. Um, what i do find interesting is that benny ignoring like his long-running appearances on tv and sketch shows and like the work that he did there um he primarily plays himself particularly in movies like around this time in his in his history so like he's popping up in cameos in john wayne movies uh playing himself which is kind of amazing it's like without reservations in 1946 jack benny playing jack benny the great lover jack benny playing jack benny somebody loves me jack benny playing jack benny boo james jack benny playing jack benny uncredited uh bachelor father jack benny playing jack benny the (laughs) you know and in the mouse that Jack built, he voices Jack, surprisingly. In Gypsy in 1962, he's playing Jack Benny. He pops up in It's a Mad, Mad World playing Man in Car in Desert. He doesn't, like, he, he was not, you know, as much as Gunlubich joked about him being an actor playing. Everyone is in uh, It's a Mad, Mad World. It's a Mad, Mad, Mad isn't World. That, yeah. it's a bit, yeah. Isn't that the, the, the thing about... The premise of it, yeah. It is the biggest like comedy today. ever. It's overcast. <laughs> Whoa, nice, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. But but I'm the idea was that like he's he's frequently compared to I joked earlier about Seinfeld, but he is frequently compared to Seinfeld to the point where like when Seinfeld the TV show premiered, a lot of the coverage of it was yep, this is very much like a modern day Jack Benny, where he and he had this personality as you point out of being kind of like miserly, being cynical, being but surrounding himself with louder characters who generally tended to take the spotlight around him, whereas he just was yeah. the cynical wall for them to bounce off. Uh, but he he yeah. was never. He never broke into film, and there's a sense in which he never really wanted to break into film, much like Seinfeld seems happy to be, like, the richest man in the world who just drives around in his car with lots of people that he has conversations with. Um, B-Movie was about it for Seinfeld. Yeah, that's it. Um, I saw a a bit of the B-Movie the other day, by the way. Sorry. Sorry for coming across (laughs) you, Darren. It was was on. I was sort of babysitting, and I was looking at it, and I was like... I have seen this movie. I have no idea. Like, I have forgotten absolutely all of this. Um, it it was just incredible. Because generally, I have an okay memory for movies. Um, yeah. Haven't seen many, but the ones I do see, I remember watching B movies. Like, what is this? I've definitely seen this before. Yeah. I, I am intrigued to check out some of Jack Benny's comedy because. Apparently, he rarely told jokes on stage. I think what made him funny was he re- would rely on things like comic silences, pregnant pauses, and that's how he got his laughs. Uh, and being the butt of other people's jokes while still being kind of the figurehead, you know, which you can kind of see where he's still the, the star of the, the troop here. Yeah. You know? Even while he's surrounded um, by colorful characters. I mean, like, again, yeah. like to give a sense of like his movie career, like one of his rare Jack Benny playing somebody else but Jack Benny movie appearances was the movie The Horn Blows at Midnight. And it was such a spectacular misfire that apparently several of his shows, not one show, several of his shows turned it into a recurring gag that he had starred in this movie, The Horn Blows at Midnight, um, which I kind of adore. So yeah, like... I, he, 
Do you know, I, I wonder if I'd like The Horn Blows at Midnight, because that's the thing I find is is that I like movies that are punchlines. Like, I like Death yeah. to Smoochie. <laughs> and people people will always kind of, like, say, like, um, if there's an actor, say, talking to John Stewart, they'll say, like, oh, well, you know yourself, you've been in in movies in Death to Smoochie, and he'll, like, just shake his head. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but to be fair, like Dan Callahan, who who like wrote about like Jack Benny's role here, like when he singles out like you know the horn blows at midnight being a running gag for years. In parentheses, he makes a point to say it really isn't that bad, but it's just bad <laughs> enough that Benny can milk it for a punchline for decades. Um, yeah, I think he has some great moments in this film, though, doesn't he? I think when I think of the things that made me laugh here, so I think his his second reading of the to be or not not to be soliloquy when the guy walks out on him again. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think there's the scene when he finds him in his bed, doesn't he? And gets him to walk out and then you get yeah, the line, first you walk out of my soliloquy and now you walk into my slippers. Well, that was very funny. <laughs> what what ill wind blew you into my slippers? <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, when he's as as Colonel Earhart, where, you know, we do the concentrating and the Poles do the camping. Again, one of probably the, the outrageous moments that people well, responded to. Fair, they didn't apparently know at the time exactly what was happening in the concentration camps. So one of those lines that got really dark, uh, kind of with hindsight. Oh, right. Um, I do like as well the line where like Maria's like you know you know if if I'm in a play you read the lines if I'm sick you get a cough if we have a child I'm worried you'll be the mother and his response is I'd be satisfied to be the father uh which is just a yes. great line <laughs> and a part of me is like part of me is like I know that Andrew's like well, well censorship office if you call that out you're the perverts part of me is also wondering how do you get out like that's a stunning line that's a stunningly provocative line yeah we should talk about Lombard because she has some great stuff too and I think she desperately wanted to work with Lubitsch, is what I've read. She said that the film was the happiest of her career. Obviously, what's tragic about it is she died in a plane crash with her mother. Uh, they were selling war bonds on a tour. I think it was just a few weeks after. In Vegas, wasn't it? Yeah, in Nevada. And just a few weeks after filming was completed. Apparently, that meant they had to slightly re-edit the film. I've seen that said somewhere. I don't know what that entailed, though. They cut a line. So um, she had a line about catching a plane. Because obviously, at the end, they fly off. Ah, um, I see. So they had to, they had to cut the line where Carol Lombard says, I have to catch a plane. Um, because that was felt like that was beyond the pale. Um, and actually, I, I would recommend here, if listeners have not listened to the uh, episode of, you must remember this, talking about Carol Lombard, um, and in particular, like her marriage to Clark Gable and Clark Gable's response to her loss. Because apparently Lombard was very much all in on supporting the troops, all in on supporting America in the Second World War. A large part of why she took this role was because she felt like she could be doing something to help America and to help encourage people to, because yeah. when she signed up, America wasn't yet in the war. Um, and like at the same time, her husband was like, no, 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 no. That's not, you know, that's not what we should be doing as movie stars. I don't have a strong opinion about this, but apparently when yeah. she he died, was, Gabe heartbroken. Was, yeah. Was Gable a, a, a war profiteer? Like he was during the civil war. <laughs> back in, back in 1939. Um, no, but he, he, after, after her death, he threw himself in. He threw himself kind of into, yeah. into the war. He signed up, he enrolled, he insisted on being sent to the front lines. There's all those stories about like Hitler wanting to capture Clark Gable, um, which again is, is a kind of a, a separate podcast of itself, but apparently like a yeah. large Better part mustache. of that was... <laughs> That's, and it doesn't blow away Better when you watch an explosion at a train station. Fair point. I, I just think that she's an interesting figure. I think very beloved in the 1930s. I think it's been claimed that... Queen of the Screwballs, wasn't it? I it's been claimed that screwball comedies were actually named after her because I think there was a, a variety reviewer. I think it was for the film My Man Godfrey, which might be her best um, 
best loved role. But uh, the reviewer said Lombard has played screwball dames before, but none so screwy as this one. Which some people have said that's where the the the, the name the comes from. But just had incredible comic timing and comic speed. I think she had a lovable quality. I think very beautiful too, which is you know so sad about you know cut down at thirty three. I think all of those things are very useful for Maria. You know she's a very untamable woman. Her husband can't control her. You mentioned the line about how he would settle for being the father there, which I really liked. But also when she knows Sabinski wants to see her and she knows somebody wants to see her and she suspects it's Sabinski and she says, I don't like to be rude to him. I think I owe it to my public. <laughs> that made me laugh as well. Um, the ending's interesting then, isn't it? Because the ending seems to imply that she has a new man who is neither her husband or Sabinski. You know, which I've always which I love, nice which I, I like. I absolutely <laughs> love that, like the bit where Betty's watching and waiting for Savinsky to yeah, get yeah, up, and then good. somebody else gets up, and both Savinsky and and yeah. her husband are kind of looking on as well. And again, like the fact yeah, in which they're she's, both being cuckolded, yeah, which is, and the fact in which like the movie is so like unashamed and so kind of like so like it's very much a on her side argument as well, which is the yeah, great thing yeah. about like Jack Benny's character is that he's he's. So like he's great, but he's also so terrible that you kind of understand. You're kind of rooting for her in this situation. Um, like kind of like again, it for a movie made by the studio system in in 1942. Yeah. The way in which like that infidelity is not even like it's not even something to be scolded or disappointed about, or it's just a fact of life. And it's also like her best life to a certain extent from the film's perspective, which is kind of amazing. And also, if we're talking about the Lubitsch touch as being something which is about things that you omit, there's the sequence where. About it's all about going to the bookshop, isn't it, and putting the message in the copy of Anna Karenina. So what happens off screen is that l- the lieutenant can't go himself. He goes to Maria Chura, tells her about the mission, and she goes to the bookshop herself. Now, in another film, you can imagine that being ten or fifteen minutes of drama. We don't get any of that, do we? We go from the first scene at the bookshop to the second. It all happens off screen. Oh, the pace you know? is incredible. It's it, it's there's there's not a dull moment. Yeah, because so like writing that, it's almost kind of you know logical to go from like beat to beat to beat. But it's like, does the audience need this, or am I just kind of writing it out so it's clear in my head? And if <laughs> and and then I can take it out and and just kind of you know, which is, which is what the movie does very well. There's no there's no sort of um, there's no exposition really kind of um uh, uh dump like like i sometimes enjoy exposition in movies you know when when it's done in a in a, in a kind of a um a crafty way um because some some kind of storytellers enjoy exposition <laughs> or, <laughs> some of what, which what i've written a book about, about? inception <laughs> yeah. inception is yeah. half the movie explaining to you what it's going to do in the second half well, any any heist movie like kind of yeah. needs to be um like that i guess yeah i mean i remember uh, when we were watching interstellar andrew singled out the scene in which like uh, during a conversation is it uh matthew mcconaughey pulls out a whiteboard and starts drawing on it um, no like, no yeah, i i <laughs> I I think I I I I I think I think you um were talking about that one. I w- I was talking about the scene in the school when oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the te- so as you know te- the world is, yeah. is like as you know and it's like uh, we know that you're a uh, a former engineer and pilot too and they start like telling the audience a whole lot of stuff about this character. It's like hey listen. 
we know all of that. We know this, that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we also know this other yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Anyway. Can sorry. I just mention one more excellent Carol Lombard moment before we move on, which Absolutely. is when she first meets Sabinsky, um, she says, I pictured you quite differently as a dignified old gentleman, which I thought was very funny because we've seen her talking to the other woman about, about him before he turns up. So great stuff. Um, but yeah, an incredible comic presence, really. So I think that would be, like I said earlier, I think part of the argument for having this on the top 250 would be to have her on the list, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Is she on the list for anything else? No. My man Godfrey? No, no. not that I'm aware of, actually, um, which is... Um... Again, the 40s are not particularly well represented. We've talked about this in the podcast before, where like the 90s through the present day tend to eat up a substantial portion of the list, whereas every all the other decades kind of have to scrounge uh, for bits and pieces. It's funny that this re-entered then, isn't it? Is it because, did you say it was hovering on the boundary with the amount of votes it had? That was was was? basically the amount of votes, and it has actually, it's since kind of fallen, uh, which is why I was kind of, why I was interested in covering it while we could, because it's very much kind of, um, you know the way that the list works. I think we did The Wizard of Oz, and it had literally dropped out. Done a few films. Yeah, it had literally dropped out in the time it had taken us to organise the recording of of the episode in question so no to be or not to be kind of it so just a very quick history in terms of of where it falls on yeah, on, yeah. It's all good because stuff. because this is a podcast about lists and uh we like to talk about this stuff so yep so it's currently at number 199 um is where it is currently it has which is fairly reasonably high in terms of like a 1942 film. can i ask how it works with the list because i'm not sure but like at 199 would it have to gradually drop down the list or is there a way it could just disappear from the list no uh, it would have to drop gradually down the list um now what, okay. what happens is they will occasionally realign it and stuff will drop sharply so you'll see days where something right. will drop 20 places and a bunch of stuff will drop 20 places because presumably they tweak the algorithm to include or exclude or weight certain votes in a particular way. They, um, they, they had complaints from sharks. Uh-huh. Um, and that jaw was, jaw was unfair, on yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah, the, the, the anti-shark the defamation shark. league was like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. we, we, we yeah. feel like this isn't representative. Um, you, I mean, you guys had Free Willy on here for a while. We can't, we like, can you, can you find a similar movie for sharks? But yeah, so to give a quick arc of the movie, so it, it first entered the list in 2002. It entered quite low, so it was around about sort of 240-ish. Um, then they changed the requirements uh, back in, I think, 2005. And the reason why they did that, and we talked about this in the podcast before, seems to be because a large number of votes for Indian and Turkish films came in. So they decided to raise the threshold in the number of votes in order to ensure that there would be less Turkish or Indian films on the list. Uh, Good thing, is... too. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a somewhat questionable practice. I want being... my list back. <laughs> yeah, um, not my IMDb250 hashtag, says Andrew. Um, yeah, no, I want no, this it... list that sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but to you, remain you can, as it is. You can very much tell, you can very much tell, like you look at the, the weeks before the change was implemented and you see a whole bunch of Indian movies entering and Turkish movies entering. Then the criteria are changed and all of a sudden it's a much more American and British centric list all of a sudden. And you're like, gee, Mm. I wonder if maybe that was a factor or an unintentional consequence. We don't mean to imply anything, though we are very much implied. The Lubitsch touch, we're (laughs) saying it without saying it. Yes, the Mooney touch. touch. Um, But it did, it came in, it's now, it entered about 190. It's actually pretty stable then. So it's actually meant to stay about 199 at the moment, which is quite impressive. So So it should be there for a while. It should be there for a while, which is pretty decent as well. So no, um, it came in, I think, so the date it re-entered was May last year. 
um, when it kind of snuck in early in, in lockdown or quarantine. I don't know if that means that more people were seeking out Ernest Lubitz in quarantine. If he was one get benefited from that quarantine bump that I think uh, hopefully I'd mentioned uh, who quite enjoyed that. Um, the famous Swedish director, because I can't. Contagion. <laughs> Contagion no. did a top of the charts as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes. Um, all right, then. So is there anything else we're talking about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people about to be Bergman. or not to be? That was, that was, that Bergman, that is, the, that is yeah, the director yeah. I was thinking of there. Thank you. Because my brain is mush today. Um, Just one more anecdote I wanted to mention. Um, we've already mentioned the remark that um, Earhart makes about Chira's acting, what he did to Shakespeare, we're now doing to Poland. And it seems like there was a particular outrage about this line. I think I read that there was a dinner after the first screening of the film uh, attended by people like uh, Lubitsch, but also Billy Wilder, Alexander Corder, who produced the film, Charles Brackett, who was a writer. And Lubitsch's wife asked him to take that line out, and Lubitsch exploded with fury, apparently, almost as if he'd been attacked personally. And he wasn't a man known for losing his temper. Um, so I think it just speaks to that sense that this is a film that gave expression to his his own political kind of concerns and anxieties. And like I said, people have said, people who know about this kind of thing have said it's his most personal film. So I guess it kind of backs that up. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, should, we should also mention as well, like the, the previous film that he did was The Shop Around the Corner. And again, people who know far more than me about film have pointed out that the way in which Warsaw is introduced at the start of the movie, like while it goes out of its way to single out the Polish and Jewish names on the signage and to read them out loud, it looks very much like at a small town America. It's presented very much like small town America is in 1930s or 1940s films. The fact in which they make a point to while all the signage uh, is in Polish, uh, all the actors are speaking in English or American accents and they're speaking English and American. There are no subtitles in there uh, whatsoever. Um, I like that the movie seems to make this more human. It seems to very consciously make what is happening in Europe more relatable to American audiences by framing it in a way that evokes the yeah. way in which American small towns are typically portrayed. I I like I like to um kind of uh, pick pick some of the jokes that I really enjoyed. I might I might have misheard this, but when when Warsaw is being bombed and the theater is evacuating, I think you hear somebody shout avalanche <laughs> like, <laughs> in, is, is it an avalanche and it's like why did you think that is that the avalanche uh kind of alarm sound that gone out? yeah but there, how there, many avalanches there, has warsaw experienced um <laughs> there there there's one gag in it as well which could it, it feels like it's a like a newspaper cartoon where <laughs> Hitler just uh, uh, it, 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 uh, dressed as Hitler. Jack Penny takes the two pilots and says, jump. <laughs> they just jump out of yeah. an airplane with no parachute. Yeah. I thought that Which was is probably hilarious. the broadest joke in the, um, probably the broadest very joke good. in the yeah. film. Yeah. Um, and very obliging fellows, but it's so kind of, um, it's so profound as well. Like, you know, in, in, in the sense of like the, people um people's kind of response to authority like that was one of one of the most kind of upsetting things about the the sorry to to to, to get ever so slightly political like it, 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 in in the in the kind of 20th century centralization of power and kind of uh, of authority it's re- realizing that that if somebody is and they, you know like all the ingram experiments and that sort of thing 
where where you put somebody in a lab coat and they ask you to do something and you just do you it probably regardless do it, yeah. of, of the screams of, of, or the of smells the of smoke yeah exactly yeah um and 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 that that's true unfortunately on 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 a very wide scale because people don't think about what they're doing or why just kind of do it because anyway sorry i don't want to go on a rant but i i thought that was and it was, i thought it was very funny for that reason because it's 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 absurd but it it's it's uh, it's very darkly comic as well is it worth noting how the movie refuses to give actual Hitler that much space in its narrative? One of the things I actually mm. like is that, like, you have actors impersonating Hitler at several points throughout. But you, first of all, when Hitler's about to give his big speech, they turn off the radio before you can hear his voice, which is great. Because you obviously, like, throughout you have, like, sequences where you see the fake and then you see the real thing. But you don't get to see or hear the real Hitler, which I find is kind of fascinating. Even the shots of him when he enters the theater are from the back of his head. And the way in which yeah. the theater is framed like Nuremberg as well, where you have people like standing up and saluting him from the theater seats, which is a very disturbing scene, uh, but is, is very effective as well. And just I, to... think, I think they felt his charisma would be too much and, and that people would... would... Jack Benny wasn't going to share with a, third with a, billing with a yeah with a with a with a very different kind of feeling about um, that <laughs> that that the director didn't intend. Um, it's like that Hitler guy seems cool, doesn't he? Um, sorry, because there's also the moment where um, is it Bronsky, the actor playing Hitler, and the director says he doesn't feel like he looks like Hitler. And he also says that the picture looks wrong, you know, so that idea of the boundary between what's real and, and what's not. And the line not, beforehand yeah. where it's like, he doesn't look like Hitler, he's just a man with a funny moustache. And the response is, that's Hitler, um, which is yeah. great as well. Um, and so you have this yeah. idea of like Hitler existing, like you acknowledge what Hitler is without acknowledging Hitler himself somehow, which is, is quite a quite a daring balancing mm-hmm. thing to do. Yeah, and it, it's just like he's a failed artist. <laughs> which you makes know? him particularly susceptible to uh, like real yeah, artists. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, yeah, it, 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 a um, and a, a a vegetarian who some who sometimes kind of doesn't uh, swallows country's, country's whole. whole yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, I don't think you can trust anybody who doesn't eat meat, Andrew. That would be my, my comment. <laughs> <laughs> that is our politics. <laughs> that is. Uh, and, and just a quick quote here from the American cinema because it reminded me a lot of a, another quote that I wonder if it was a direct reference to it. Uh, Andrew Serres, writing in the American cinema, noted of Lubitz, we shall never see his like again, because the world he had celebrated had died, even before he did, except in his own memory. And that reminded me a lot of a direct quote from Wes Anderson's, uh, like, the Grand Budapest Hotel, where you have a similar conversation about, like, the consequences of a fictionalized Second World War, where you have, you know... Uh, Mustafa saying of Gustav, to be frank, I think his world had vanished before he had ever entered it. But I will say, he certainly sustained the illusion with a marvellous grace. So I do wonder if, like, Wes Anderson kind of... Because, again, like, the Grand Budapest Hotel is, is a very Jewish-influenced or inflected kind of story. I found that kind of an interesting uh, parallel when I read that line. But, the, yeah, there, there, there's a kind of a... Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, they're, 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 you 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 see that as well with like the First World War, where there's this kind of um, death of decency, where um, there were sort of expectations about kind of like you know we're 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 at war, but we're you know we're honourable or something, and then finding that oh we're not, 
yeah, no, like um, it's it, it's all kind of been um, uh, been punctured. We have these kind of ideals that are no longer manifest in our reality, or something like that. I think that's what's interesting with to be or not to be, because I think I said that Lubitsch's brand of comedy kind of fell out of favor. But I think a lot of his earlier films were set in a very fantasized version of Europe, European cities like Paris or Vienna. And then it's with films later, like Ninochka, The Shop Around the Corner, To Be or Not To Be. They enter the real world. That you still, it gets more authentic, yeah. Because Ninochka was controversial in its its portrayal of kind of the Russian Communist Party. I think like Russia bandit, if I remember correctly. like that. It, 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 yeah, it, I think people sometimes group those films together. The three I just mentioned is not a loose trilogy as such, but you know, kind of a, a shift. Right. Is there anything we want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at anybody with regards to To Be or Not To Be? Not for me. I think we've covered it pretty well. Okay. Um, all right. With that in mind, then, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the movie, something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie. And to give Carl a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, something I used to watch a lot as a child was Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. I have not watched it for a while, but um, but I always enjoyed it. And it made me want to um, to write or do something like that, you know? Because it it was it did and and it is, yeah. It, it, because it it was it was it was very sort of grown up, but it was something that I could um, play at, I guess. Um, if, I can't if that remember makes the con- I can't remember the context, but I remember it coming up where like myself and another guest were talking about something that we enjoyed as kids, and you your response was yeah well I enjoyed Lawrence Olivier's nineteen forty eight Hamlet thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, do, do you know what it was? It was availability because they, 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 it, 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 it comes around to the music I, I, I listen to as well because there, there, there weren't that many, you know, VHSs in the house. But my mother was studying literature and was doing this big kind of, um, was focusing a lot on Hamlet and had gotten, um, had gotten Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet, had gotten kind of like, um, she also got Nevermind by Nirvana. So I ended up listening more to Nevermind than she had because it, for some reason she, 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 she wanted to kind of put it to that sort of soundtrack in her, in, in, in her mind, um, which is interesting. But the, the, the um, uh, Hamlet that is. Well, I guess that kind of makes sense in terms of like teenage angst, actually. That really, that probably does make sense yeah. actually, in terms of teenage disconnect, teenage angst. She's a clever woman. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead uh, um, uh, as well I don't think it's out at the moment but something um, that is is um, sorry I keep on forgetting the name it's Alexander Platz I think is the new uh, Tom Stoppard which, um, which I, 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 I think it's it's possible now to book tickets with actual dates um but we'll we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> because see because this is the world in which we live <laughs> yeah yeah um um yeah look 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 out for that i may have given the wrong title i believe it's leopoldstadt um and carl what would you recommend for listeners what are you enjoying at the moment i'm going to recommend a film i only heard of recently but it kind of fits with to be or not to be because it shares an emphasis on a kind of performance it's a film from 1978 and it's called hooper like I said, I hadn't heard of this until recently, but it's directed by Hal Needham, who made Smoking the Bandit, 
and the Cannonball Run. And this is another film he made with Burt Reynolds. So Burt Reynolds stars alongside Sally Field. So Reynolds plays a daring stuntman for an action star who's making what appears to be a James Bond-esque action film. And one of the funny jokes is that Adam West plays the big film star and Burt Reynolds is his stuntman. Um, what's interesting about the film is it has this very charming hangout vibe. You know the way some of Tarantino's films are described as hangout movies, like uh, Jackie Brown. Maybe or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Stuntman, yeah. Yeah. It has that kind of feeling to it. There's lots of impressive practical stunt work. What took me by surprise is that as it wears on, you get this sort of pathos generated because... The idea is that Reynolds' character is getting older. His body's giving him more trouble than it used to. He's got this younger rival, stuntman, who's seems to be threatening to rise up and challenge his status. So I didn't expect it to be as touching as it actually was. Uh, I thought it was a surprisingly good film. Burt Reynolds is someone I haven't seen as much of as I would like. He's you know one of those people who really likes Boogie Nights. I've seen Deliverance. I've seen one or two of his other films, but not much beyond that. And I don't think this is one of the films you always hear him associated with. So I just thought I'd flag it up. Uh, he gives a very charming performance. It's very obvious watching it why he was such a big star back in the day, I think. So, yeah, Hooper. I'm not sure if it's widely available, but uh, yeah, good stuff. There, Did you say that was a sequel to Smokey and the Bandit? No, or? same director. No, the same, same director, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and also starring Sally Field director. as well, because Sally Field is in... Yeah, Sally Field's in that, Reynolds, yeah. right? Yep, yep. <laughs> it's, it's the wow. dream team, baby. It's the dream team. Dream team, um, yeah. Because I think Super. when we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, one of the influences on Brad Pitt's uh, character of Cliff was, the was I think, Burt Reynolds and his stunt double, which is kind of interesting as well. Is that and right? Believe- of course. And he was going to be in the film, wasn't he, before he yes, died? Well. Burt yeah, Reynolds, he was he? Gonna, yeah. Which is kind of striking. Um, so that's, that's kind of an interesting. I suspect another kind of Tarantino overlap here, because we mentioned To Be or Not To Be is obviously a touchstone for Glorious Bastards as well. Uh, in terms of recommendations for myself, just because I watched it recently, another movie that deals with the absurdity of war makes people feel deeply uncomfortable and comes from a director who has been explicitly influenced by Doobie or Not To Be and another obligatory Robocop reference. I rewatched Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers uh, during the week and it is a masterpiece. It remains a masterpiece. It's probably his second best film, I would argue, behind Robocop. Uh, which like, is stunning. Like Robocop, there is a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a, there's at least three um, uh, Starship Troopers There are dr- Marauders, uh, and Casper Van Dien uh, comes back for the third one. Yeah, a, fr- a friend got me the, the, the three. And, like, whoever made them uh, appreciates, in part, what made the movies popular. You know, um, but not entirely. Okay, so it's the it's the in part but, nude pretty people and the not yeah, entirely the yeah satire. yeah that's that's exactly what it is yeah yeah <laughs> um, there's there's nudity in all three um, so yeah. So I rewatched that. I thought it was fantastic as well. And also, I should probably I mention that this was as well. Well coded, Darren. Yeah, I, I, your Lubitz touch was just like imperceptible. <laughs> Um, whenever I say Lubitz touch, I keep hearing like Genesis singing "Invisible Touch" in my head. Now he seems <laughs> to have a Lubitz touch. But anyway, and finally, because this podcast is coming out roughly mid June, I would also recommend cinemas. They should be reopening in Ireland, um, and there should be some good stuff opening in them. So go to your local cinema, attend a movie there. Uh, the Father will be opening, which we covered earlier in the year. Will be opening in Irish cinemas this weekend as well, and I think is well worth your time. All right, with that in mind then, where can we find you, Carl? Watch up to... Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CKJ Sweeney. As we record this, um, several weeks before it goes out, um, this is actually the first Movie Palace recording, like, crossover this in this instance, but the first one I've done in quite a while because um, 
I think the national lockdown over here, January through March in particular, was kind of tough. The kids were home from school and so on. So I'm just getting back into recording now. But by the time this comes out, hopefully I will have started to release episodes again. Um, I think I, my episode on The Sound of Music will definitely be out before this one is. Uh, some of the other films I may, or, may have already covered or maybe coming in down the line include um, Now Voyager, um, Dr. No... And I think I've got one or two other things lined up as well. So looking forward to getting back back in the podcasting saddle. Well, to that I say, Doctor, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the podcast can be found at Movie Palace Pod on Twitter, by the way. Um, all right, then. We'll be back next week when the... You have Sorry. to do your, your, your one-liner in the Sean Connery voice. <laughs> Uh, sorry, Darth. <laughs> yeah, I beg your pardon. For that, we say Doctor Yesh. Um, and I apologize to all Scottish listeners for that. Um, yeah. Um, and we'll be back next week. Uh, we'll be continuing our trend. We've looked at some fantastic films. We journeyed through world cinema and classic cinema. So next week, we're going to be discussing 250's favorite director, Uwe Boll's Blood Rain, uh, with the wonderful Billie Jean Doheny. And then don't worry if that's not your speed, because the following week as well, we will be discussing Fargo on its 25th anniversary with the fantastic Stacey Grout and the wonderful Renaki Gregor. So we hope you'll join us then. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much. See ya. Uh, Carl. Thanks, Bo. Really enjoyed it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you.